Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, January 11, 843-661-0937. At about this time, I would normally say good morning, Josh. I will say that, and maybe he's listening, maybe not. Josh is under the weather, not with us this morning, so it's um the dynamic duo that made Wake Up Carolina the fixture in your life before uh, we took on a third leg to the stool and added a um a prestigious producer. So good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Uh, instead of sitting in here doing nothing, you will sit there and do a lot today. I right? have to work today. I, yeah, I got to work today. Run the controls. Had to work a little last night after a storm, yeah. trying to get things back online, get things back reestablished. True. Uh, we hope Josh feels better. He gave it a shot. I think he texted you last night and said he was feeling terrible. Um, woke up this morning, felt a bit better, came in for a few moments and said, kind of kind of ran through the drill and said, I don't think I can do this. Yep. So we, um, I saw you spraying your mic a second ago with some of the disinfectant yeah. to make sure you don't get on whatever it is. Josh had eight, four, three, six, six, one, oh, nine, three, seven is, uh, is the number. So be patient with us. I mean, if I have rev given an opinion about something or other, and you're calling in, understand that he can't get directly um, to the phone, but we'll do the best we can. I'm sure we will be, um, just fine. And we have a busy show lined up a today, too. A very busy show. A lot of show. guests. A, a lot of guests. Um, we've got a member, a current member of county council coming on sometime this morning, trying to resituate some of the time slots. But sometime this morning, a member of Florence County Council is coming on to announce his campaign or candidacy for re-election. We've got Reggie Armstrong. We've got John Decker. We've got Drew McKissick. We've got Robert Cahaley. We've got a member of uh, the Florence County Council coming on to announce his re-election. I'll just leave it there. We've got a couple of Fox guests here, Eben Brown and Jared Halpern. I mean, we'll be busy today. Let's begin the show. You know, when, when th- there's always these debates about the greatest ever. Who's the greatest ever? Who's the greatest of this? Who's the greatest of that? I mean, they're fun debates. There is no right answer. Um, but some things in some places that sometimes – Someone has so established themselves superior to everyone else that you kind of got to say, how do you argue he's not the greatest ever? Yesterday, in a surprise move for me, there may have been people in Alabama and some of the um, some of the insiders of the SEC may have known this, but Nick Saban um, called it quits. The University of Alabama, um, after a long, illustrious, and successful coaching career, in particular at Alabama, I had somewhat of a failure in the NFL, went to LSU, won a bunch of games, won a BCS championship, went to Alabama, and I think won six national championships. Um, the Tom Brady of college football coaching. I mean, we can argue, was he the best, uh, was he the most talented coach? I don't know. I mean, he won more than anybody. Brady won more than anybody as quarterback for the New England Patriots and then the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Um college football lost a giant not in fiscal stature but in coaching accomplishment um just and and i'll say this i mean as someone who has tried to maintain some degree of competitiveness commitment to being as good as you can possibly be i preach that to all three of my kids relentlessly try to instill in them that all i want you to be is the best you can be i mean i don't know how good that is but i want you to be the best you can be every single day because if you don't do it today you don't get it back and you can't double up tomorrow you can't get today back Saban 
instill that rev in a way that I find just almost unbelievable. I mean, I, I don't know if anybody on earth is truly a Vulcan. He may be. <laughs> a Vulcan? I mean, he may be a Vulcan. He may be the most logical creature on the planet <laughs> earth. Um, he did instill a degree of responsibility and accountability and competitiveness and staying on top. I mean, just, I mean, we know how hard it is to get there. And then you always hear it's harder to stay there. I mean, Clemson knows how hard it is to get there. Now they're finding out how hard it is to stay there. That cat got there and stayed there. And to me, that is the, I mean, that, that's the greatest compliment I could give to Nick Saban. He had what it took to win a championship. And then he had what it took to win six more championships in college football. Now, I don't know uh, why he failed at the NFL. It's kind of weird. All these college coaches, you know, the um, the Holtzes of the world, the Spurriers of the world, the Sabins of the world, highly successful in college, but just for whatever reason couldn't make it in the NFL. I don't have any idea why. I mean, if there, is the game that much different? I don't know. Uh, I would argue college football is a lot more like the NFL today, but there's a big financial component involved in it now you're dealing with free agency and you know and uh, front offices and money and all these other sorts of things but I think the greatest tribute to Nick Saban is not only was he good enough to win a championship he was good enough to win six more and once you get to the top of the mountain some of us enjoy the view and we get a little bit more nonchalant a little bit less committed a little bit less intense that cat stayed as committed as intense uh, for the long run as anybody I've ever seen in college football. And that is, I think, the greatest compliment you can give to Nick Saban. Commitment, dedication, um, intensity. You, you always wondered whether he enjoyed it or not, or I did. From afar, I'd look at it and say, is the cat having fun or not? Well, I mean, he's beating everybody's brains out, but he's having any fun doing it. This year, during the season, a couple of times I saw him being interviewed by reporters and he would smile and laugh and joke around where I hadn't seen a lot of that in the past. And that may have been kind of reading between the lines. Well, now I look back and say he probably knew what he was going to do, had made his decision. But he seemed, and to your point, this year, a few times I thought, man, that guy might be having fun. You know, the, and I didn't think that in previous well, I mean, years. No, you're right. He, he seems to be so Did you pick up on that? And, and demands that from everybody. I mean, I'll give you a story. Um... Will Muschamp, former coach at South Carolina, and I developed a friendship. I mean, I got to know Will pretty good, and I talked to Will, and I would congratulate Will, and I would encourage Will. And I've told you this. When I realized it wasn't working, it bothered me. I mean, it, because I'd become a friend of Will Muschamp, and it bothered me that I saw the writing on the wall, and this isn't working. I mean, they're going to eventually have to make a change, and, and the only football coach in South Carolina history I've ever become friends with is going to lose his job. And should lose his job. I mean, that's just the way that world works. Will told me one day, um, I don't think he'd mind me sharing this. So this would be kind of a testament to what we're talking about. Will told me one day, it's like the middle of July. He was on the staff at Alabama. Excuse me, staff at LSU. He, Jimbo Fisher, I think Jimbo may have been the offensive coordinator. Muschamp was the defensive coordinator. Um, Saban was the head coach. Will said it was like the third week of July. And all these other staffs were going on vacations. And I mean, they got buddies all over. They got buddies at Clemson, buddies at South Carolina, buddies at Notre Dame. I mean, it's, it, they're all mercenaries in the weirdest way. They're, they're not 
I mean, they don't bleed orange and garnet. I'll promise you guys, they don't bleed orange and garnet. They bleed green. Not Notre Dame green, <laughs> but Dore me green. Do they have loyalties and affections to programs? Of course they do. Do they build friendships and raise families in certain? Of course they do, without, without doubt. But Will told me one day, it's like the third week of, of July, and he's got two buddies or who are coaches at, let's say, Texas, and they're to meet somewhere and have a big time. Families get together. But he said, we're working, and we're watching film, and it's like 9 o'clock on a Wednesday night. And, Nick, we watched the film of the Utah-Washington State game. There, there's some new defense that was implemented. Linebackers are doing something, and Will wanted us, excuse me, and Nick wanted us to watch that. Third week, July, 9 o'clock at night, light flips on. I'm going like, hell, we're going home, finally going home. He said, hey, I've ordered some pizza. I, I want to watch the second half, and if you watch what this nickelbacker does, you know, and such and such, good God, man. <laughs> I mean, he paid you well. We, we'll always say Nick paid you more than the average. I mean, he took good care of assistant coaches, but he demanded of them what he demanded, I guess, of himself and what he demanded of his teams in general and the proofs in the pudding. I mean, once again, I use Clemson as an example. They know how hard it is to get to the top of Mount Everest. But when you get there, you don't stay there long. Saban just didn't get there. He built a house there. I mean, he built a house on the top <laughs> of Mount Everest. And it is someone who considers himself somewhat competitive and intense tip of the hat, big tip of the hat and and really a congratulatory thank you for all Nick Saban did for the uh, for the game of college football the SEC's different now you know he's out Oklahoma Texas come in he's out the great question now is who follows Nick Who's Saban next I can tell you it's not going to be it's not going to be Dabo Sweeney Dabo's smart I mean Dabo's very shrewd calculated and smart there's no way Dabo wants to be the guy that follows the guy I mean do you want to be the guy that follows the guy that follows the guy I mean, there are several examples out there. I mean, you didn't want to follow Bear Bryant, or you didn't want to follow Coach K, or you didn't want to follow Dean Smith. I mean, you want to be the guy that follows the guy. I'm not saying Dabo's a lifer at Clemson. I mean, it would have to be a unique opportunity, and, and Alabama is an incredibly unique opportunity. You could argue the best job in all of college football, but but you're following the greatest coach in the history of the game, and and I think the the the, the threshold for success the expectation for success is so unrealistic that the next person is going to fail. Is it Dan Lanning? I mean, I've heard that name. Is it Lane Kiffin? I've heard that name. Is it Dabo Sweeney? I've heard that name. I don't have any idea what the personality traits or characteristics of Lane Kiffin are. I don't have any idea. I mean, I know he's matured. He's grown up. He's a hell of a football coach. He's built a program at Ole Miss that I think will be in the 12-team playoff come next year. Dan Lanning is kind of the hot name. I mean, there'll be some coordinators out there you know, kind of the hot name, the guy at Washington. Um, I've heard his name mentioned, but but I, I got to say, uh, I mean, as a Gamecock fan, do I wish it were Dabo? Probably. Create some instability in my rival. That's always a good thing. But I think um, I mean, I think Dabo's too shrewd, too smart to be the guy that follows the legend. Now, if he were desperate, I mean, if he saw the wheels coming off the Clemson program, might be time to bail a little bit. I actually saw some reporting yesterday from the national media that said Dabo was not one of their top two or three choices because the trajectory of his career is a little bit concerning right now. I mean, I don't know that I buy that or not. But anyway, um, we talk a lot of SEC football. We talk a lot of football in general. 
we talk a little sports at the beginning of the show, and we'd be remiss if the greatest coach in college football history retired and we didn't say congratulations and thank you for all the butt whoopings you've given (laughs) (laughs) over the years to both the Gamecocks and a lot of other teams. And by the way, and the one we gave you. Yeah, well, we gave one one year. That's right. The the Garcia game is is what I – Alshon Jeffrey and Steven Garcia. I went to Tuscaloosa. I'm trying to think of what year it was. Saban had just gotten there. Uh, Maybe year three or so of Saban's tenure. I mean, he just – you you really saw it beginning to happen. Uh, I mean, they 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 mortgaged the farm to get him there. I mean, they really and truly. I mean, they jumped through more hoops and did more things to get him to Tuscaloosa. But I think year three of his coaching tenure, the Gamecocks traveled down there, and uh, five or six of us guys went. And it's twenty-one to nothing in the first quarter. And I looked at my buddy sitting beside me, and I said, "They hadn't had a second down yet." He said, "Do what?" I said, they hadn't had a second down. It's 21 nothing first quarter. They hadn't had a second down yet. And he looked at me and said, damn, you're right. That's what I wouldn't have said. It. I mean, they've not had a second down yet. <laughs> so it was obvious they were building something uh, of championship caliber and quality. So congratulations, Nick Saban. Enjoy your retirement. Um, and we'll, it, it'll be a lot of fun to watch who is willing to be the guy that follows the greatest college football coach of all time. Let's go to the phone. Verd in Marlboro County. Morning, Verd. Good morning. Good morning. Can you hear me, Ken? Yes, sir. Good morning. Yeah, yeah, I've got to say congratulations to Coach Saban. Uh, you know, seven national championships, I guess, counting the one at LSU. And uh, what, what, what I find about amazing, Coach at four different schools never had a losing season in his career. Never had not even one losing season in his career. That's just amazing. Um. As I say, back in Pamplico and McCall, we're getting in the short rows on the uh, Iowa caucus about 48 hours from now. Uh, poll I saw yesterday has Trump back at 50% in Iowa. Uh, I think he did a great job last night. He really handled the uh, in town hall grade, and he uh, got out of uh, Haley and uh, DeSantos two uh, town halls uh, virtually unscathed. I think they, they missed uh, – a move that they probably should have been taking advantage of, uh, you know, just maybe uh, 48, uh, 60 hours ahead of the uh, caucus. But basically, they didn't hardly touch Trump in their two town halls. And uh, I just uh, think, you know, uh, writing's on the wall. Uh, uh, I guess Christie uh, took him a long time to figure it out, but it's not going to be Christie this time. And he pulled out yesterday. But anyway, I think President Trump's going to do real well Monday night. And uh, I hopefully uh, these. Uh, uh, two other candidates, because I won't call them competition because they're not. I think that they should see the writing on the wall. And for the good of the country and the good of the National Republican Party, they should bow out and everybody get behind President Trump. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. Well, Christie said he's not. I mean, Christie said yesterday. Now, now, in all honesty, he's a blimp on the radar. I'm sorry. He's a blip on the radio. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't laugh out loud very often on tweets. Occasionally, your tweet about Christie last night calling him a blimp on the radar. He's a blimp on the radar. I misspoke when I, know, I said blimp. But I laughed. He's a blimp on the radar. <laughs> Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Dabo's smart enough to squeeze him a little raise out of this, I would imagine. <laughs> you know, if they think you're in demand, if, even if you're not in demand, is Dabo's agent Jimmy Sexton? Because if Dabo's agent is Jimmy Sexton, Jimmy Sexton will try and convince the Clemson Board of Trustees and President that he's got Bama on the line. And Bama, Bama is about to hire their head football coach away right now. 
Jimmy Sexton has gotten college football coaches more raises than the federal government has raised a debt. <laughs> and that's you put something. Jimmy Sexton in a room with a Power Five AD, and the art of negotiation is the key and central theme of that. Jimmy Sexton laps the field with college athletic ADs. Jimmy Sexton is a killer, a cold blood killer, and I would not doubt. I mean, if Dabo. I know Sexton represent. I mean, he represented uh, Will. I know he represents Shane. I would imagine he represents Dabo, if not be somebody similar to Jimmy Sexton. Yeah, he'll um he'll make Alabama. He'll convince Alabama, or excuse me, he'll convince Clemson that he's got Bama on the line, and they're about to make Dabo a deal. He can't refuse, and he'll squeeze another couple of million bucks a year out of Clemson. That's what uh, the sports agents do, especially uh, the guy named. Jimmy Sexton. Um, Chris Christie did get out of the race. Um, I did say something a, a little bit disrespectful yesterday. I misspoke. I mean, I, I wrote something, <laughs> and for some reason, my keyboard stuck, and I couldn't correct it, so I went back and just corrected myself in the tweet uh, when I said, you know, Christie getting yeah. out of the race is basically one hand clapping. I mean, there, there's nothing there. There's no noise there. There's no reverberation there. I mean, he was a blimp on the radar, and then I corrected myself and said it was a blimp ooh, ooh, on yeah. on the radar. Yeah. Um, it, the, the interesting part of Christie's announcement was that he decided yesterday was the day that he saw no path to the nomination. We saw it a long time before mm-hmm. you did, Christie. Uh, we saw this a long time uh, before you do. And now, what I I, thought, I would imagine if I want to be just ugly and nasty, because he's been kind of ugly and nasty toward our guy. If I want to be ugly and nasty, I could probably say, well, the memo that said you have no chance to win the nomination was on the um, the the shoes on your feet, and that's why you couldn't see. <laughs> you know, the uh, the pathway to victory was um, just not there. Another there good was, line. Well, there, there was never a chance for Chris Christie to be the nominee. He was a man with no constituency. I mean, he's a man with, with, with a certain degree of vitriolic anger toward Trump. And I don't have any idea uh, whether he wanted something and Trump promised him something. Donald Trump says that Christie's just not the kind of guy you want in important positions. He's a friend, uh, a little bit buffoonish, uh, a little bit full of himself. And imagine Trump saying somebody else is full of them of themselves. But, um, but anyway, Christie's out. I would imagine, Rev... That has some impact in New Hampshire. Well, and that was going to be my question because I think, you know, if there's anti-Trump in the Republican primary, he had that vote for the most part. Who do those people go to? And was this a strategy between, say, him and Nikki Haley to say, let me let me get, you know, you get out. Hopefully she'll get some some of his voters and then she wins New Hampshire. I, I, don't think, I mean, is that well, part I, of the strategy? I, I don't know. I mean, if you're a candidate, I don't know that you make a deal. What does Christie gain by supporting Nikki? I mean, he, he's even admitted in a hot bike moment. I mean, DeSantis is petrified, and Nikki's not ready for this. I mean, he said that. And so, so what does Chris Christie gain by getting on the Haley bandwagon to try to help her win? If and, she and wins people, New Hampshire, it inflicts harm on Trump, and that seems to be his goal. But, I mean, it, it, you're still on the wrong side of the winner. What people don't understand about New Hampshire, here's why New Hampshire is an outlier. And, and it's weird the way we do things. And I'm going to get, I'm going to get Drew and Robert to kind of give me an, an opinion on this. So we're, we're, we're electing a president, a primary process. We're beginning in the middle of winter in a place that'll be sub zero temperatures in a caucus. I mean, does that give a, a proper representation 
of who the most popular Republican, who is the candidate most Republicans want to be their nominee? Donald Trump. I mean, we know that. But it's going to be 12 below zero in the middle of the winter in Iowa, and we're having a caucus. It's almost like they're trying to trick the polls. They want to do something outlier. And then you leave there, go to New Hampshire. The oddity of New Hampshire is an open primary. If you've listened to John Sununu, you know what he says over and over again? If everybody who can vote will vote, Nikki Haley will beat Donald Trump. What he's basically saying is if we can get some enough Democrats to vote in the Republican primary, well, I mean, Sununu's admitting that. We can't beat Trump with Republican primary voters. But if enough of you Democrats who don't like Donald Trump will vote in this open primary, then we've got a chance to do our thing. Back to Christie, I don't know why you would endorse a candidate that's 35 points behind the front runner. I mean, there's nothing to gain. I understand you think Trump made a deal with you and he reneged on his deal. I don't have any idea uh, what, what the animus is between Trump and and, um, and Christie. Um, I mean, Christie's punching up and Trump's punching down. And Trump is always punching, so he's not going to take a pass on. I mean, if Christie says something derogatory about Trump, I mean, the smart and prudent thing to do is let it be. He's at 3%, 4%, 5%, and New Hampshire a little bit higher. Um, just let that be. But but Trump's not the kind of guy that just lets that lets that be. But what's the upside of Christie endorsing Nikki, winning New Hampshire? Let's say Nikki's within six or seven in New Hampshire. And let's say Christie gets out. And every Christie voter goes to goes to Haley. And Haley wins New Hampshire 39 to 38. And then kind of a, an upset. Pat Buchanan won. John McCain won. I mean, New Hampshire does crazy things. They kind of like doing crazy things. It's what they're known for. But then Nikki comes eight days later to South Carolina and gets smoked. I mean, what, what has Christie gained? I mean, he got one day in the sun, right? I mean, we show Donald Trump in New Hampshire, but Trump storms to the nomination. And Christie has, I mean, he's a man with no constituency. He's an open border globalist interventionist Republican. There's no constituency in the party today for that, or not significant enough to make a fundamental difference. So that's kind of what I don't understand. I mean, I understand Christie getting out. I mean, he had no chance to win. He never had a chance to win. But but why would he endorse Nikki Haley? I mean, I understand the Christie voter going to Haley, but why would Christie want to be a part of that, especially when you catch him at a hot mic moment and say, she's not ready for this. Well, then I'll, I'll say this, Rev, and I think I can say this with some degree of... I don't want to use intimacy. That's the wrong word. Some degree of personal involvement. Nikki's not ready for this. I mean, if you watched the debate last night, I watched a few moments of the debate. It's it's rehearsed candidates. Excuse me. It's coached candidates in rehearsed lines. I mean, who's the better coach candidate? Who has the more rehearsed lines? And and then you flip to Trump, and it's off the cuff. And, you know, the, the, the largest deportation ever in the history. Well, we're going to have to. I mean, we're going to have to do that. I mean, it's, it's, as he's, as he's, it's as if he's sitting at a bar having a beer. I mean, he's not a drinker, but if he were having a beer, talking about things in the real world, Haley and Christie, excuse me, Haley and DeSantis were the classic example of coach candidates and rehearse lines. Well, it does go to show you the disingenuous, disingenuousness is what I'm trying to say um, of politics and of Christie, because if he is in one out of one side of his mouth, publicly saying, I endorse Nikki Haley for president, okay? All my voters go support her. And in the other side, in the private moment that was caught on a hot mic, he said, oh, man. Well, in the honest moment. This. I mean, it's the honest moment. Exactly. I mean, that, that, you're right. So, so I don't know what he gains. I mean, if Christie, he's not my friend. He'll never be my friend. 
But if Christy called me and said, hey, what do you think I need to do? Get out and be quiet. Just get out and be quiet. Go find you something else to do. Now, Christy is a little bit like Trump. It's hard for him to be quiet. He likes to be the, uh, you know, the, the, the brash New Jersey governor. You know, I'll tell it like it is. Maybe that's some of the um, resentment that Christy has toward Donald Trump. I mean, in this era, in, in this populist era, in the Republican Party, call it like you see it pays great dividends. And Christie was, W-A-S, the call it like you see it guy until Trump gets here. And Trump is, I-S, the call it like you see it guy. And, and I, maybe that's, you know, this was my moment, Donald. You stole my moment. And you never ran for office. You never served in office. You didn't do the work necessary to prepare yourself for uh, the presidency or the governorship, whatever, whatever. And maybe that's the resentment he has. But with Christie and most politicians, it's all about them. It's all about them. How bright are the lights on me? How much attention to being paid to me? How, how much um, how much name ID and noteworthiness am I getting out of this? That's what Christie's about. That's all he's ever been about. He's an attention seeker. He's a publicity hound. That's what he is. That's who he's always been. And for him to stand before a group of supporters and say, you know why I'm getting out today? Because I don't see a path to the nomination. I mean, who believes that? There was never a path to the nomination. He took every opportunity to disparage Donald Trump, to marginalize the Trump campaign and candidacy, and it didn't work. And he got a lot of appearances on CNN. Well, sure, and that's probably where he'll end up now. He and John Kasich and, uh, you know, John Thune and, and uh, Huntsman and all that crowd, I mean, they'll end up, you know, as um, the token Republican on MSNBC or NBC or CBS or or CNN for that matter. I mean, that's probably the journey or the path forward for Chris Christie to be that Republican who talks that way about the America First political movement. Take a break. Back in a few. You know, we've done a lot of theorizing, or I've done a lot of theorizing and hypothesizing in the last few days about things out there that you can't really um, completely and totally understand. We talked yesterday about you know, the fact that I believe today, and I do think this, I mean, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but I do believe one of the qualities I have, I've got a lot of bad qualities, one of the good qualities I have that pay me um, pretty good dividends in the world of politics is kind of the instinct. But, you know, I, I just sense something out there. And and, I, and I'm also, I think, willing to admit when I know I'm wrong. And I kept saying over and over again last year, that every time Trump opens his mouth and isn't talking about inflation or immigration, but is talking about the 2020 election or January 6th, he's losing votes. And I got to be careful to not believe that my bubble is representative of the electorate at large. But I'm convinced now, Rev, and we went into great specificity and detail yesterday about the chaos. Um, you know, the, the chaos seems to be paying dividends to Trump. Uh, the more chaotic, the better his numbers are. I never imagined that would be the case. And then you got to kind of say, okay, if that's a theory, what do you support that theory with? And and I, I went back to the guns outside the man's private residence in Mar-a-Lago. I just think that visual is, um, I mean, it's, it's I don't want to say it's eternal, but it's, it's, it's front and center. I mean, it's there. And I think when you start talking about convictions and trials and lawsuits and legalities and Supreme Courts and whatnot, a lot of people just go back to that visual of, of men with machine guns standing outside the gates of Mar-a-Lago, the private residence of a former president. 
And I, I just think, some, I mean, I, I believe we do a lot of this subconsciously. And I think subconsciously that gets to the front of the line and some of these other things become a bit secondary. Um, I was thinking about the election, the 2020 election, and, you know, the Biden team meeting with the media. I mean, we're reading now that the Biden team is meeting with the media and they were convincing the media to portray the Trump campaign a certain way. In other words, um, you guys are an extension of the DNC, so let's talk about January 6th. Let's talk about the 2020 election. Let's force the debate. Let's make Trump fight under our terms. I mean, he's a he's a street fighter. He's hard to corral. He's hard to get a harness around. But you guys are, I mean, you guys buy ink by the barrel, so to speak. So let's make this debate about these things that we believe will make him less likely to win in November. And I think now they're finding out it's not working. So they're getting back together with the media. I mean, imagine this, guys. I mean, imagine if we live in an America where one political party has the media in its pocket and the media carries the water. Whatever you need done, you let us know and we'll get it done. And like, I go, like I said yesterday, it's not that they meet with the media because I'm sure there's media people sure. and, and with all the administration and all the players. Uh, but in this case, they meet with the media, tell them what they want them to do, and then they do it. Well, to get the marching orders. And this is the funny part of it. So they did what the, the media for a year, maybe a year and a half, has done exactly what the Biden administration asked them to do. Stop talking about immigration. Stop talking about inflation. Talk about January 6th. Talk about the 2020 election. And the Trump numbers increase. His polling numbers get better. So the Biden administration goes back to the media and says, hey, forget all we talked about last time. Uh, start talking about some of the crass things he says. The disgusting person um, that, that he is. And, and I'm beginning to believe, because we talk about these Carvel Axelrod's conversations that we'll never hear. These hypothetical, James Carville and David Axelrod. And I think even you would agree, Rev. I mean, you're Republican, I'm a Republican, but I'll tip a hat to someone who I think is talented on the other side. Sure. Both those people are talented. Axelrod sure. is a talented Democrat operative. Carville has proven over the years he is a talented Democrat operative. I mean, those guys are smart. They believe fundamentally different than we do, but they're smart guys. And I wonder if in some of those meetings, but I'm not talking about the the, the, the nuts on MSNBC. I mean, they're not Axelrod. They're not Carville. They're nuts. I mean, they're nuts with a TV show or nuts with a segment or a broadcast responsibility on one of the liberal media networks. But I'm talking about serious people who try to win elections. I wonder if the conversation on the other side, Rev, doesn't go a little bit like this. I'm not sure we can do what we did again in 24. I mean, the way the pandemic allowed us to get so creative the chain of command, excuse me, the chain of custody, the unsolicited mail-in ballots. I mean, we had a unique opportunity. We had $450 million show up at our doorsteps. We had a pandemic we could blame on, you know, isolating people. I mean, more people voted in the 2020 presidential election that nobody witnessed them casting a ballot than did. I mean, imagine that. More people in 2020 cast a ballot that nobody witnessed them casting that ballot than those who had a witness. In other words, you go to a school, go to a, a fire station, go to wherever it is you go, church, and, and cast your ballot. More people in 2020 voted in, in the dark, so to speak, with no witness. And, and I wonder if Axelrod and Carvel get together and say, there's no way to duplicate that. I mean, we can't do that again. We can't expect 92% out of these precincts in heavily Democrat areas 
like Philadelphia, like Milwaukee, like Chicago, like, well, Chicago doesn't matter because it's, you know, blue anyway, but like Milwaukee and Wisconsin swing state, like Detroit and Michigan, somewhat of a swing state, like Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, like Gwinnett and Fulton County in Georgia. I mean, that's where the, 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 the statistical anomalies lie. And I just wonder if the smart guys and ladies on the other side say, if we don't think we can do it again, then let's get him off the ballot. I mean, let's get him off the ballot. See, remember the debate we had yesterday about insurrectionist revolutionary, you know, and what it looks like. I'm not with the spirit of insurrection. I think somebody texted me during the show and said, you're trying to argue that we're, we're kind of in an era of the, the spirit of insurrection being front and center with the GOP, but aren't, aren't the Democrats already revolutionary insurrectionists? I mean, they don't obey the Constitution. I think they are. I mean, they, they break the laws. I mean, we know the um, so, some of the constitutional officers in about four states. I mean, they broke state law. I mean, they, they, didn't have the, they didn't have the right to do what they did in regards to when, how, where people vote, but they did it anyway. I mean, they, they so, so in essence, I mean, they, they're already, I mean, the, the Democrats already have the spirit of insurrection and, and the spirit of revolutionary. I mean, they've had it for a good while, and I think we're beginning to kind of understand fighting fire with fire is going to be required. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. Got a call. We'll get to that as soon as we get back. You know, I think one of the most obvious illustrations for control and influence and censorship and, you know, we get to decide what the debate is because you and I, Rev, we believe, and, and I think we have been validated to some degree we believe that those in control of disseminating information have been unbelievably one-sided in what they allow to be amplified and what they censor um elon musk has said multiple times that if i were to make public all the information about the former ownership of twitter and their willingness to work with the government the government's willingness to work with with twitter it would probably start an insurrection so as a public service and in the name of now, it's pretty weird to believe Elon would, would do that being the consummate contrarian that he is it must be bad. Well, I mean, that's him playing provocateur. You know what that is, but I mean, we know that the state department, I mean, it's public knowledge now, I mean, there, there's some, there's some testifying under oath now that says, yeah, we met with Twitter pretty re, uh, pretty regularly. And we did ask that they not make public. The, the Hunter Biden story. We did ask that any account that included the Hunter Biden laptop story was not just suppressed, but censored, was not allowed to be in the mainstream. The New York Post is the oldest print publication in America today. Um, it's owned by Rupert Murdoch or the Murdoch family. I mean, they were the ones that broke the story, and they basically shut down their, their Twitter site. Their Twitter account uh, was locked. So, I mean, do we, you know, to believe that that didn't happen is absurd. I mean, th- those are examples we know about. And now we're finding out that the Biden administration is meeting fairly regularly with the New York Times, Washington Post, ABC, CBS, and NBC. And they're actually meeting again to now say, hey, scrap the plan. <laughs> we we got to come up with a new plan because the old plan is not working. Uh, we, we thought that if we could force the debate about January 6th and, and, you know, the 2020 election, Trump would pay a severe price. That's not the case. The intent was always to make Trump's base more rabid, to make sure that his loyal supporters show up in a primary 
we end up with a nominee of our choosing. In other words, we want Trump, not DeSantis or Haley. We'd rather have Trump. And it looks like that strategy may not be the strategy they, uh, that they're kind of married to now, that Trump could be a, uh, a much tougher opponent come November than they ever anticipated. But they're kind of sort of showing you the censorship mindset by, and I know this may be weird and you're going to, well, I mean, I don't know how you get there. But, I mean, if you think about censorship and you think about not having a debate, you think about, um, you know, the, the historical nature of media, when you take a statue down, I mean, th- think about that, guys. I mean, when you take a statue down, you're censoring history. I mean, all the Confederate statues, I don't know if you saw this or not, but now William Penn's statue is being taken down. I mean, one of the most important figures in early American history, uh, you know, a statesman. Um, but but you could question some of his virtue in in life. I mean, imagine that questioning someone's virtue in life. I mean, I, I know we're such a virtuous people now, but I think the Democrats will show you their hand if you give them a chance. And, and when I say Democrat, I'm talking about the radical liberalism that dominates the Democrat Party today. Taking statues down. I mean, you can't deny history. I mean, we know that. We're dealing with a lot of Civil War history now because of the 14th Amendment. I was thinking about this, Rev. So the 14th Amendment, or uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, was to deny any Confederate who fought against the federal government, the U.S. government, the right to run for office. That was about a four-year war that somewhere between 600,000 and a million people lost their lives. And we're trying to apply that same amendment and that same paragraph to a, a rowdy riot that lasted about two hours. So the 14th Amendment, and Section 3 in particular, was to stop insurrectionist Confederate soldiers or office holders who attempted to secede from the Union. There's no doubt that's insurrection. There's no doubt that's rebellion. I mean, that's as insurrectionist and rebellion as it gets. Um, and you know how we know that? Because 600,000 to a million people died, and it took four years. But we're equating one half of January. We're applying the same constitutional standard to the events of January 6th that we did the Civil War. I mean, imagine the insanity. With it. I mean, that, that's an insane proposition. I mean, you're talking about a leap. And I was, I was just thinking about that this morning. So the Civil War. Nearly a million people died. Took four years. Broke a nation in half. January 6th. Two hours. Maybe three. Only person that died in the events of that day, in the events of that day, was an unarmed Trump supporter. And that's I mean, that, that's, that's kind of the, um, the 14th Amendment created to stop insurrectionists from the Confederacy from seeking office. That standard is to be applied to January 6th. Wow. That's how I know we're dealing with revolutionaries. We're worried about being labeled insurrectionists and revolutionaries. I think we need to take on the spirit of revolutionaries. Let's go to the phone. Anthony in North Carolina. Good morning. You're on. Hey, fellas. My phone probably is going to go out. I'm going by uh, DuPont. And it all goes I think you're right, Anthony. <laughs> I think your phone just went out. I'm sorry. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Yeah, we'll go to line two, and it's Williams in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hi, you're on. Hey, what are you, what are you talking about, man? You need to be tested. 
Hey, uh, what did old keeper at the Power Boys serving time for? Continue, William. Okay, okay. Trump stayed in that in that cafeteria watching for two, three, two and a half hours on on TV or watching the insurrection. The daughter come in there three times, beg him to stop that crazy shit. I mean, crazy stuff. And you talking about two hours? What's wrong with you, man? Tell the truth. That's all I ask of you. Tell the truth. Bye. Thank you, Williams. Um, what have I misrepresented? I don't know. I mean, what 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 factual uh, statement or what statement did I make that I can't support with facts? The Fourteenth Amendment was incorporated into the Constitution to deny the right of a Confederate soldier who acted as an insurrectionist and rebelled against the United States of America from ever being elected uh, to office. That's why the 14th Amendment's there. That's why Section 3 is written as it is. The, the Civil War included the killing of somewhere north of 600,000, south of a million people. It lasted around four years, and we're applying the same standard. You're asking, I mean, some states are applying the same standard to the January 6th three-hour riot where one person got killed at the event. That's an unarmed Trump supporter by a capital city police who has never faced a charge, never, as far as I'm concerned, been tried. Uh, I would imagine they've been interrogated. I don't know if they've been interrogated or not. Um, but but how do you apply that same standard, the absurdity of that? Well, that's I mean, that, if you're a revolutionary, that's what you do. You make that leap. You make that reach. So when we're, we're sitting here accepting, you know, whether we're insurrectionists or not, whether we're revolutionaries or not, the Democrats are clearly showing you that they are revolutionaries. It's unbelievably revolutionary to try and apply the same standard, 14th Amendment, Article 3 or Section 3, to the events of January 6th as to the events of the Civil War. And nobody can deny that that's why the 14th Amendment is there. Nobody can deny that's why Section 3 is there, to stop a Confederate from ever running for an office of the United States federal government. And three hours, January 6th, nobody dies. I mean, I know Sednick died, but we found out later he was not hit in the head with a fire extinguisher. He died of a, I think, a heart attack. They wonder whether it was associated at all with the events of January 6th. We know Ashley Babbitt is no longer with us. She was unarmed. She was killed by a capital city police. And we're, but we're applying that same standard. And I mean, that, that's how I know we're dealing with revolutionaries. So, so the point I guess I'm trying to make is just kind of don't shy away from, from what you're accepting as, as real. Take a break. Back in a few. It's that time of the week. Great television senior national editor, White House correspondent John Decker joins us. John, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Ken. Hope you're doing well today. Having a great week. So, John, are you or are you not on your way to Iowa first of next week? I am. I'll be uh, in Iowa on Sunday. Uh, the high temperature, Ken, when I arrive, minus Six degrees. How about that? So I'm preparing for that as well as the Iowa caucus itself. Better you than uh, than I. Uh, it seems yeah. to me 
that there is obviously an established front runner in Iowa. It's Donald Trump. He didn't win right. the Iowa caucus in 16. I think Ted Cruz may, may have won that. What, what, do, right. what should we expect out of Iowa uh, this coming Monday? Well, there are sometimes surprises, you know, because uh, I just mentioned the weather. Weather is a factor. Let's face it. You know, not everybody can get out uh, to their local precinct or elementary school to caucus. Uh, It may be snowing on caucus night. Uh, That's a factor. And just, you know, essentially uh, being able to get out of work and family obligations all have to be factored in. That's why uh, you're getting out the vote of your supporters is so important. But having said all that, poll after poll, and I have not seen any poll which differentiates from this, shows Donald Trump with a double-digit lead in Iowa. And really the battle, uh, like we saw last night, is for second place. It's Nikki Haley versus Ron DeSantis. And Ron DeSantis has devoted so much of his time and resources uh, into trying to do extremely well in the state of Iowa. John, you're an attorney. I'm not. I get very confused at some of these um, some of these legal matters. I mean, I think I have a kind of a common sense understanding of it. I mean, I don't think anybody believes the president can do anything he wants to do whenever he wants to, however he wants to, and wherever he wants to. But the president does have broad discretion and are given a lot of immunity. Uh, as a lawyer and a reporter, kind of parse this this D.C. story where they're they're debating on how much immunity a president does have, both in office and after he leaves. Well, that's exactly what was argued before the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals earlier this week. I was at the court for this argument. I watched it all play out for the hour and 15-minute long hearing. Uh, And what is contained in the brief, which was uh, delivered to the three-judge panel by the lawyers representing Donald Trump, is different than the argument that the that the, one of the lawyers representing the former president delivered in court itself, uh, in the hearing room itself. Uh, what was contained in the brief was the idea that a president should be covered uh, as it relates to the issue of immunity for all of his official acts. Uh, what the argument that was put forward in the hearing room was that you could only prosecute a president if he had already been impeached by the House of Representatives and convicted by the U.S. Senate. And that is a very interesting point of view. I I think it's a a losing argument to make. And it was pointed out by one of the judges on that three-judge panel. There were two Biden judges, one George H.W. Bush judge. And one of those judges pointed out uh, probably something that, you know, you've maybe even played the clip of. Uh, Could a president order SEAL Team 6 to take out a political opponent and not be charged with a crime? And the answer was uh, qualified yes. Uh, the qualified yes is he'd first have to be impeached and then convicted uh, before charging a president with uh, complicity in murder. So th- that is an awfully uh, interesting argument to make. I think it's a losing argument. I think that the former president will lose at this level, and then it may indeed be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. John, is there any precedent here? I mean, is, does this set precedent eventually on what presidential immunity exactly means? It could. It depends upon if the Supreme Court takes this up, the opinion that is written by the Supreme Court, or if the Supreme Court doesn't take it up, the opinion written by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. What I mean by that is, is it a broad opinion or is it a narrow opinion just based upon the facts before the court, uh, you know, and 
I think that that's an important uh, element to factor in. Uh, President Richard Nixon uh, claimed immunity in a case in 1982 after he had been president. And the court ruled there that uh, the idea of broad absolute immunity does not exist for a president. So there is some precedence for this uh, idea. And that is something that uh, you also have to factor in. The other thing you have to factor in is Richard Nixon. Uh, he, be, uh, upon leaving office, accepts a presidential pardon from Gerald Ford. Why would you accept a pardon if you uh, believe, if you know, that there is the possibility, uh, if there's not a possibility of you being prosecuted? Well, uh, the reason you accept uh, that pardon is because you're concerned about being prosecuted, uh, meaning that Richard Nixon did not believe he had this absolute immunity. That's the belief of Donald Trump and his lawyers. Well explained. In another, I guess, political slash legal matter, Hunter Biden shows up yesterday at a, a, a hearing deciding whether to hold him in contempt or not. Um, why does Biden show up? And what is your take on the reaction of, this, of the committee at large? Yeah, so uh, it's the House Oversight Committee. That's the committee that he showed up to later in the day. They voted along party lines to hold Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress. There'll be a vote on the full House floor. And uh, assuming every Republican votes for that, then it would be up to the Department of Justice whether to actually charge Hunter Biden with contempt of Congress. Uh, we're talking about at least a $100,000 fine, a possibility of a one-year jail time. That's uh, what uh, Steve Bannon has already been convicted of. Uh, and uh, uh, that is something that he has to contend with. Uh, as to why he showed up, I think it was a legal move more than anything else. Uh, the, the lawyer representing Hunter Biden essentially saying, look, here's the client. He's showing up. He's willing to take questions. I think it was uh, showing that to the DOJ that ultimately will make this decision about whether to charge Hunter Biden, uh, showing that their, their client, Hunter Biden uh, is acting in good faith. But again, it's not up to Hunter Biden in terms of the terms that are presented to him. It's up to the committee. And the committee first wanted to hear from him in mid-March uh, in a sworn deposition behind closed doors. And there would be a public hearing later. Uh, the witness does not get to dictate the terms of, you know, they're showing up and answering questions. And the, and the private hearing behind closed doors is fairly common. I mean, they're not asking Hunter Biden to it do is. something they've not asked all these others to do. Am I right? You are absolutely 100% right. You think the, with that January 6th committee uh, hearings, all of those public hearings, those witnesses that, that we saw testify publicly, they had already given sworn depositions, each and every one of them. It was not like it was the first time the committee had heard from those witnesses. It was the first time we had seen them, but it wasn't the first time that they had testified to what they saw uh, uh, you know, take place on on January 6th and in the days leading up to January 6th. So not unusual uh, whatsoever. This is not something that's just targeted towards Hunter Biden. Well explained. John, thank you for your time, sir. Have a great day. Have a great day. Thanks so much, Ken. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. John Decker, Great Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent. Let's get back to the uh, to the to the home front. I think we've got a caller on the phone. Let's go there. Larry in the PD. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. Y'all might have gave me too much time to think about what I wanted to say, and now, now I'm not sure it's it's good enough to put on the radio. That, that, well, there, there's something in that busy head that you'll say, I'm sure. Well, what I was going to say is you remember in, um, in It's a Wonderful Life, it said every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. Yep. I, I feel like every time William speaks, someone registers as a Republican. 
<laughs> this is the guy spitting on your food. Uh, <laughs> McDonald's, I want to thank you all for putting him on. I think you do a great public service, but I need to go one step further and tell your listeners there are 100 million people in this country just like him. He is not some fringe, strange anomaly sitting somewhere in Orangeburg with thoughts all his own. He is the useful tool of the left. He is mad as hell, and he does not care what the facts are. And they don't talk about that cat, but there's a bunch of them. And in every election, he's right here in South Carolina. He's, oh, they're not like that in the South. We've got a, a majority. You guys better vote, and if they'll let you vote twice, you better vote twice, because if that cat can vote twice, he will. And I'm just telling you right now, do not think you can rest on your majority in your city election, in your county election, anywhere. That guy right there will walk 27 miles uphill through the snow because you kill people when you get the chance. That's what he's been taught. He's fighting for his life because he is a swarm of misinformation. He's been lied to probably his whole life. From elementary school to the pulpit, to the water cooler, to the television, to the news, to everything. And he is not going to stay home on Election Day. And that's why you can't either. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937 is the number. I was reading something yesterday. Um, I may try to find it this morning. But I was reading something yesterday about the the decentralizing of media allowed Americans to realize that the opinions held by people, ABC, NBC, CBS told you were fringe or not fringe at all. Once again, the decentralizing of media, the, and I, and I guess talk radio rev would be a part of that. Um, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, TikTok, MySpace, whatever came, uh, before, it allowed people to express themselves without fear of consequence. And before then, the opinions that were allowed to be, uh, to, to allow to exist in the mainstream were those that CBS agreed with or NBC said was okay or CBS said okay. And all of a sudden, everybody has the ability to be somewhat of a provocative um, journalist. And we found out over the last, what, 10 or 12, maybe 15 years, that it's not fringe at all. There are large universes of people out there that believe things out of the mainstream. In fact, the mainstream may not have been mainstream at all. The mainstream may have been a deal made with corporate American big media, you know, um, whatever sector of the economy we're talking about. The conspiracy theorists that weren't allowed to have a say in the conversation in the mainstream are now have access to uh, multifaceted, and vertically integrated media empires that include Rev, Twitter, and Facebook, and Instagram, and and TikTok, and I mean I've said it before. If you've got the latest greatest widget, and you got a chance to advertise your product on CNN or Joe Rogan's podcast, I mean you go to Joe Rogan's podcast because you're going to confront more potential consumers. But it's an interesting read, and I'll try to find it during a, a break or two here. But it's basically saying that the the fringe opinions or what CBS and ABC and NBC tried to portray as fringe opinions aren't fringe at all. There are millions and millions 
and millions of people out there who have a variety of opinions and you don't have a centralized media to say, okay, this is acceptable and this is not. This is allowed to be in print or digital and this is this is not. Take a break. Back in a few. At the center of the majority of these debates we have, I mean, if you really start digging and pl- I mean, there, there's the periphery and there's the the significant, the insignificant, there's the important, the not so important. But at the center of all of this, or the majority of this, I'll back up. The majority of this is based on the establishment preserving its integrity. I mean, the, the ruling order, the status quo, the cathedral, the, the managerial class, the ruling class, the sta- you know, whatever. I mean, the, the, the elites. I mean, there, there's a lot of different ways to explain or describe. But in, in reality, Rev, what we're talking about is the, the, the American political order has been long run by the establishment. And the only way the establishment maintains control is preserving its legitimacy. And as long as the Times, the Post, the Wall Street Journal, CBS, ABC, and NBC disseminated news, it was easy to kind of maintain what is the mainstream and what is the, you know how those kooks are, you know those Ron Paul supporters that occupy Wall Street crowd. What's happening now, and the reason it is smart on their part, I mean, the establishment making such an effort, and you talk about Elon Musk, the reason they're so upset with Elon is Part of the establishment maintaining or preserving its legitimacy is control over digital information. I mean, that's the new era. That's where we are. Digital information. I'm sorry, New York Times, you're not as big a deal as you were. I'm sorry, Wall Street Journal, you're not anywhere near as big a deal as you were. ABC, CBS, NBC, you are nowhere near as important as you once were. So when we have the decentralization of media, the establishment finds it much harder to preserve its integrity and authority to rule over the masses, so they've now focused on controlling this digital information. Because what digital information does, Rev, is it convinces you and I that some of these things we believe aren't that crazy after all. I mean, when, when, when we hold an opinion and we feel strongly about these things, but, but CBS, ABC, NBC, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, uh, you know, the mainstream media says, well, I mean, public opinion says this. Well, I mean, public opinion says that because you force public opinion to say that. I mean, you are in cahoots with preserving the establishment's legitimacy. It's, you are the establishment. The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, ABC, they are the establishment. They're hand in hand. I mean, if one hand washes the other, they both get clean, is what my grandfather um, used to say. So when... When you lose control over digital information, the public realize that some of these opinions they hold are far more popular than they have ever imagined they would be, and you gain a degree of confidence, and you gain a degree of unity, and you gain a degree of success, and all of a sudden, you get Donald Trump elected, and you begin to change some things. And next thing you know, Tucker Carlson has a... A show on Twitter that gets more views than the CBS Evening News. And all of a sudden, there's an inversion. What CBS believes is true is a little more fringing than what we believe to be true. So the, the establishment has worked so hard at building this legitimacy 
Now they're having to preserve that legitimacy, but they can't control the digital information. And Rev and I, and many of our listeners are starting to realize, hey, these things that I believe, there's an ass of us. I mean, there's a lot of us. The New York Times wouldn't tell us that. CBS News wouldn't tell us that. But this digital era has allowed us to talk to people who have very conspiratorial beliefs as, as we do. Let's go to the vault. Does that make sense? It sure does. Let's and, go to the vault. And that's why Elon is such a threat. They, they hate him now. Yep. Forget electric cars and, 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 you know, payloads going to space. They hate that guy because he allows free speech and they can't control this digital information. Let's go to the vault. Anthony in North Carolina, who tried earlier but went out of uh, cell signal, is back with us. Are you there, Anthony? Yeah, I'm here, but I'm on Fort Bragg now, so it might go out again, so I, I, I'll make it kind of quick. I was thinking about them hiding Biden um, during the, you know, the um, election time so he wouldn't really embarrass himself. Then I thought thinking about it. What if Trump people are hiding Trump, not having him debate the rest of them, because if the average, if the average person see him side by side with uh, – I miss his name of uh, Ramaskami, I mean, Vivek, then they probably wouldn't vote for Trump. Because uh, unless you are diehard, I believe, blue for Trump, that other guy, uh, Vivek, he is the better candidate than Trump. But maybe Trump people know that, and they hide him from being on stage with uh, him. So they say, okay, but you the excuse of he's so high in the polls, why waste the time? But I believe that's the, um, you know, that's the reason why. And one more thing. If somebody please report, Ken, you're talking about the power of the media. And nobody will report on the tunnels that they found right now in that, that, that synagogue in Brooklyn that goes all over, that, all over Brooklyn. It's a church in Brooklyn. And then whenever the cops came and tried to um, investigate or whatever, they had an all-out brawl fight. With them, it's on certain news channels, but like you say, you know, who control the news though. But the same kind of tone that you would see in Palestine and whatever, they in Brooklyn, right in front of them. But um, that's all I had to say, fellas. I saw that. Thank you, Anthony. Appreciate that. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Back in a few. So, Rev, did I hear another weather report that included tornadic activity <laughs> and storm, storm fuel? fuel. You yeah. did. You Storm did. fuel and tornadic activity is not a topic in January. <laughs> Damn it. I mean, it, that, that's not the way the world works in the deep south. We worry about a little snow flurry here and there in January, not tornadoes and storm fuel. Uh, what do we, who do we talk to about that? Storm fuel is a new word that we can use, and it just sounds cool. Yeah, I said it at the gym yesterday. I said, you know, the weekend could get testy. What do you mean? Got some storm fuel out there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, got some storm fuel. And we have to thank Andrew Dockery at WMBF for kind of bringing that up to us during, was it Tuesday's storm this yeah, week? Yeah, so, so, yeah, there's apparently another what they call first alert weather day potentially for Friday. Nothing as big and widespread has happened on Tuesday, but still chance for some storm fuel to create some storms. And and, and I'm in, in, the, in the complaint giving part, but yes. I'm not in the, plain, the complaint accepting department. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chair and co-chair of the National Party, I got to believe never feels the complaint. Everything is perfect in his world nearly every day, whether it's tornadic activity, storm fuel, or political candidates. I'm sure, Drew, the trains run on time every day in your world, right? 
Well, you know, if you don't like the weather, whether it's weather, weather, or political weather here in South Carolina, just wait 10 minutes and it'll change, right? Fair, fair enough. Speaking of weather, <laughs> weather may be an issue in Iowa. Um, we're in South Carolina, but we still pay attention, Drew. When I think of the Republican process of electing a president, I think of Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. I know Nevada's in there, but I think those three states are central to how we get where we end up. I don't want to say, do you want to make a prediction in Iowa, but but w- w- what's kicking there um, that somebody like you would um, would perceive? Well, I mean, yeah, Iowa is, of course, you know, it's a caucus. It's not, not a primary. So a caucus, you know, those meetings can go, you know, an uh, hour, a couple hours. Uh, and it is going to be seven degrees, counting seven degrees. That's the forecast I saw because I have to, get on a plane tomorrow and go to Michigan and then go to Iowa on a Saturday night and be there through the caucus. So I've, I've actually have, uh, a, uh, an overcoat that I bought a few years ago. I've worn one time. I think it was at the Trump rally out there near Florence when it was so cold. Uh, and I'll have to break it out and carry it with me. But you know, that weather is going to influence turnout, of course. Uh, you know, if it influences turnout for primaries, it certainly influences turnout for something like this. You know, these are going to be dedicated people who want to come and sit through a meeting, uh, you know, where you, you get uh, uh, early in the meeting, they divvy folks up based on which candidate they're initially for, and they go to different corners of the room, and then they come out, and they make speeches and try to convince people on one side to go to the other side, et cetera, and it goes on and on until it wraps up. Uh, that's a different type of a format than a primary, like what we have here, what they have up in New Hampshire. Uh, so organizational skill is key. Caucus meetings, uh, learning how to one get your folks to want to come and sit through the meeting, and then two, once you get to the meeting, what do you do to get more folks who want in your corner initially to come to your corner? Uh, so you know that's that's a very very different setup, and it is um, uh, it, it pays the biggest dividends to the people who are who work and prepare their supporters for that kind of a system. It's more organizational intensive, uh, and now I understand the Sanders campaign. And the Trump campaign, those two specifically, from what I've been hearing, have probably the biggest ground organizations in Iowa. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, you know, we all see, you know, we see in the news every day what the polls say in all these various places. Uh, now, we'll say, you know, polling a caucus versus polling a primary. Yeah, it's a little bit different. I'd say polls for primaries are probably more likely to be accurate than polls for caucuses just because of what I just described. But, but again, you know, it can be different day to day. We'll see. Um, and New Hampshire, uh, again, it's a primary. New Hampshire is a different electorate than we have here in South Carolina. It's an open so, primary, right, Drew? Yeah, it is. It is, just like ours. Um, and the result is uh, you've got a different group of a type of Republican, if you will, that's going to be voting in New Hampshire than what we have here in South Carolina. We tend to be more conservative. Uh, New Hampshire is a little bit more moderate. Uh, you got a lot of folks who used to live in Massachusetts who moved into New Hampshire. You know, they got tired of high taxes in Massachusetts and moved to New Hampshire and took some of their political ideas with them, unfortunately. Um, so we'll see what's going to happen. But it's, uh, I think what we're going to do is we're going to get an idea of just how accurate all the polling is. That's going to be the most interesting thing to me. Drew, what, what significance is it that Chris Christie announced yesterday he's getting out of the race? I mean, he hadn't polled well. But, but he may right. be a factor in New Hampshire. I mean, it, you, you've told me, and I agree with this, 
that primaries are energy building operations. You get a little momentum coming out of Iowa. You go to New Hampshire and overperform, and you get a little more momentum coming to South Carolina. It seems to me that DeSantis is putting a lot of eggs in Iowa. Nikki's putting a lot of her eggs in in New Hampshire. She's at the endorsement of the the fairly popular governor. And now Christie's getting out, and the RCP average has him at about 12. Obviously, that makes New Hampshire more competitive. Fair enough? Yeah, fair enough. It does. Uh, And, you know, I'd say it's just good for both Haley uh, and DeSantis. Uh, Probably a little better for Haley. Um, You know, and and again, the the electorate, again, as I pointed out, being a little bit different there in New Hampshire. The difference, though, that we have this time, uh, you know, traditionally, almost since 19, maybe every time except for once since 1980, South Carolina has been about 10 days after New Hampshire, you know, when we would hold our primary. This time is different because Iowa and New Hampshire went so early in January uh, and nobody else other than Nevada can go before Super Tuesday, which is the first Tuesday in March. So we made the decision here in South Carolina, well, why would we go that early and leave the rest of February wide open for candidates to scatter across the country when we could move closer to Super Tuesday and, one, make them spend more time here in South Carolina and, two, call South Carolina to be a bigger boost for the winter going into Super Tuesday uh, and to continue to make South Carolina matter as it always has in the past. So that's what we did. So, you know, you can look for as soon as New Hampshire's over, uh, those candidates are going to be, you know, like locusts here in South Carolina. They'll be everywhere spending a lot of time and going to a lot of meetings. And and that's what we expect. Drew, last question. It was pretty obvious to me last year that the more Donald Trump, and I'm talking specifically Trump, the more Trump talked about immigration and inflation, the better he was. The less he talked about January 6th and the 2020 presidential election, the worse he was. I'm not so sure I'm right, Drew. It seems to me that as chaos ensues and he's forced to debate some of these issues January 6th and 2020 election because of all the indictments and the impending or the pending litigation, his numbers don't suffer as a result of that. What do you make of that? So folks have been asking questions like this since back in 15 and 16, you know, when they would see uh, things that would normally just, you know, devastate a campaign have little to no influence over Donald Trump. Maybe even positive, Drew. Uh, So you're exactly right. (laughs) I mean, especially now, especially now when you look at things with the lawsuits and so forth around the country, it's almost like the lawsuits and everything attendant to that or to them has become the campaign. You know, the, the, the charges from uh, liberals and the administration to Trump campaign's responses and then uh, filings and filling up in court. So it eats up so much of, you know, I'd say the air, if you will, uh, that the other candidates then can't fill because it's, it's just moving in and taking up so much of the space. And I think as far as the Trump campaign goes, they're completely fine with that uh, because it, in addition to, to doing that, it also highlights an issue that makes Republicans upset. You know, it's a, uh, a, a two different standards of justice. You know, people see that. They get upset about that. He's the target of it. They see that. They get upset about that. Uh, so that has, in a lot of ways, become the campaign. Uh, and then now you see what we all probably thought everybody expected, that there's Democrat hypocrisy going on and two standards of justice. And then you have things like, you know, now, what is it, Fannie Willis, you know, we find out has uh, been playing patty cake with a special prosecutor, you know, behind the scenes who's married to another woman, and basically she's wrecking the, wrecking the family now <laughs> to, to, um, 
what was it, uh, one of the other ones up in the Northeast that made about six visits to the White House here within the last year. You know, it all looks coordinated. Of course it's coordinated. Of course it's crooked. And that plays as an issue in this primary. And very, I would say in the general election, too, by the way. Yeah, very well explained. And, and Drew, I really appreciate you joining us. Stay, I would say stay warm in Iowa, but it's impossible when the temperature is around, <laughs> around zero. Right. Um, I, I would suggest they stop in Green Bay to see how cold it is. I mean, I'm a big football fan. Green Bay's always been the coldest place on earth in regards to, um, to the NFL. So um, tell the people in Green Bay and Iowa that we're, uh, we're dealing with tornadic activity and storm fuel over here our way. <laughs> well, I'm taking my long jobs. So I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> Good deal. Stay warm, my man, and appreciate you joining us. Thank you a lot. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman. Let's do this, Rev. We're, we're going to add Lib here. I've got a guy that's going to announce his re-election, and, and I support his re-election. want to make sure we give him ample time. Let's take a break, come back, and we're going to kind of jump around. I don't think this guy would mind. He's a good friend of mine. We're going to let him announce his re-election. we got Kahaley calling in sometime around this, but I want to get this guy to stay with us both before and a little bit after uh, Robert calls in. Let's take a break because I want to make sure we, we – um, <laughs> we, we situate the chess pieces in, in the right place. Take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. You know, somebody walk up to me at the gym a while back and said, hey, man, you've got some influence on that radio show. You know what my answer was, Rev? Hmm? Not without you, I don't. Not without you guys, <laughs> I don't. Right I'm a answer. man in the studio talking to myself unless there are uh, listeners out there and we've garnered a good audience and we're proud of that. We're respectful and appreciative of that. And it's majority Republican. I mean, there's no doubt about it. The majority of people who consume conservative talk radio are conservative Republicans. And I think it's always smart when somebody in office or seeking office inquires about coming on the show to address not me and not Rev, but rather um, you, their voters, and our listeners. A lot of overlap in that Venn diagram. Uh, this gentleman's been a good friend of mine for, we were just talking a second ago, probably 20 or so years in politics. He was a school board member when I got elected to Florence County Council. Text me one day earlier this week and said, hey, I want to announce my reelection, and I want to do it on your radio show. And I'm flattered that he decided to come here and um, and introduce himself as a uh, he's a current member of city uh, county council, but he's asking for your support in reelection. Willard Darty has been around the block a time or two. Good morning, sir. How are you? Thank you, Ken. I, I certainly want to uh, thank you and and uh, Dave for allowing me to be here today, and I appreciate what y'all do for the community. And the voice that y'all have in the community, uh, it's always a joy to listen to your program and get y'all's perspective. So, but it is good. But yes, I've, uh, we've decided with, you know, sit down with your family and we want to make sure your wife's always happy with you doing this. And we've decided that, uh, one more term that we're going to run for reelection. Of course, I'm a Republican. I represent, uh, as district nine, which is in the West part of, uh, uh, Florence out in West Florence. And, uh, I've been humbled to have been elected to serve there for the past 11 years. And I hope I'll be able to return for another term. I think the County has really progressed in the time we've had. Uh, you know, we've done a lot of good things. Uh, we've started economic development. Uh, we've, uh, broadband been big, uh, you know, uh, it's much needed in this county, and it's, it's it's full bore. It's not totally complete, but it will be, and it's hitting our rural areas that didn't have it. Uh, when we're finished, it'll be 98% done. Uh, you know, we've had some changes in leadership in the county in the uh, 
hiring side, you know, economic development director and administrator, and that is working well. I'm glad I was able to oversee that, but it's, it's, it's done well. Uh, economic development, uh, new announcements coming, and we're not stopping there. We're going to have some others. But the main thing is people need to understand that it's just not about Florence County. It's about the PD as a whole now because we're falling behind other areas in the state in population and in economic growth. And when you do that, the children that you raise here, they tend to go somewhere else. And I'm tired of seeing them going to Greenville and Charleston and, and Charlotte and places like that. I want us to provide jobs here where they feel comfortable coming back home and can stay here, one. And two, when we lose population, we lose political clout. I don't know how many people realize that. We've got three good uh, Republicans you'll have on the show probably tomorrow, and Jay and Philip and, and Mike. But as we lose population, we lose the ability to elect people like that. And we, when you we lose your clout in Columbia and you lose representation, you lose out on what uh, can benefit your region. And so, and also economic development raises the ability of a mill to increase. And a mill is how you pay for taxation. It's how you do it. In uh, 2021, I think a mill was worth about $482,000. Uh, now it's worth $555,000. People ask me where I think we need to go. I said, well, Ory County's a mill's worth almost $2 million. We're not going there. Charleston, $4 million. Green was over $3 million. But now I look at a county like uh, Anderson, where it's worth about Eight hundred and fifty to nine hundred thousand. That's something that we can reach, and and that's very realistic. I want you to sit tight because I want to hold on to you. I got some questions I want to pose to you about the penny tax and some water issues, and I know you're very informed on that. Right now, we're joined with a um, senior strategist, or not a the senior strategist at uh, at Trafalgar, which I consider the preeminent Republican polling operation in all of America. I looked at the latest poll out of Iowa from Trafalgar um, and kind of teach, I don't know, lets me know where I think we're headed in the Iowa caucus. Robert Cahaley, good friend of mine and somebody who is kind enough to join us this morning. Robert, good morning. How are you, sir? Good morning, Ken. How are y'all? I am doing well. So, Robert, I don't want to ask it as, as broad as this, but I will. Um, the lay of the land as you see it, heading into the Iowa caucus, you got an a New Hampshire, Nevada primary. You got a South Carolina primary around the corner. I mean, how do you see this thing, or what does your data suggest to you that this thing is shaping up as? Well, I think yesterday was very interesting with uh, Chris Christie's departure. It was a natural uh, feeling that most of his votes would go to Haley, but with his uh, hot mic moment kind of giving Haley a swift kick. I think may put some of those people on the sidelines uh, that it's kind of a wasted effort. You know, it's a lot to ask a Democrat to cross over. Uh, they had to re-register which party they were in. Uh, and, um, you know, and you got independence. And so that kind of took a, a little bit of the steam out of getting a, a complete uh, taking of all of Christie's votes and putting in them in Haley's column which I think was everybody's goal by trying to push Christie out of the race. Um, the thing I think, think people should look for, and we're going to look for, if we look at maybe even putting out some power numbers, is 
how the temperature is going to affect things, however, in Iowa. Uh, we really, our numbers tell us that the people who are most energetic about voting are supporting Trump and are supporting DeSantis. And, and we're looking like a forecast of like 12 below right now. So that, that may give those two campaigns an advantage and even give some of the Ramaswamy voters an advantage and kind of keep some of the, you know, kind of as how you would call it, mainstream uh, moderate Republicans home. Uh, so that might be some bad news for uh, Haley. But I think all in all, you know, the departure of Chris Christie and the quite possible departure of DeSantis if he does badly in Iowa could put us with a New Hampshire with pretty much just uh, Trump and uh, Haley left with maybe Vivek taking up a small percentage. And that, you know, New Hampshire would become the first kind of motto motto state before South Carolina. Now, obviously, the one thing people need to understand is the way they're doing uh, the way they're doing Nevada is not exactly uh, the same because they're going to have a convention that allocates their delegates and their uh, ballot process is what they call a, uh, it's like a, a, a pageant. It doesn't really matter. So we could be looking at the races down to Haley and Trump uh, very quickly, depending upon how things turn out in New Hampshire. I mean, how things turn out in Iowa. Robert, at any point in time in the next two weeks, does, does DeSantis and Haley have to consider their future after 2024? I guess what I'm asking is, we thought DeSantis was the most likely person to rival Trump and, and run against him nationally. Um, that's just not working out. Now we'll find out over time if that's the case or not. But at any point in time in the next two weeks, I'll give you personally, does Haley, is Haley willing to risk to come her home state and lose by 20 or 25 points? Does that ding her significantly and make her less of a factor post-Trump in this nationalist populist movement that is overtaking the Republican Party? You know, it certainly is something she should think about, but what we find more often than not is, um, you know, when when somebody feels like they're hot, they're, they're kind of like a race car driver with a hot race car. They're going to run until they run out of gas. And a lot of them feel that way. And DeSantis' problems have everything to do with the fact he doesn't have the money he used to. And Haley's bravado has to do with she has the money to go all the way through Super Tuesday already in the bank. And that's kind of what um, Chris Christie was talking about is the millions uh, that is being that, that she's spending right now. So, yeah, I think she she does have to do that and do that analysis. But uh, you know, Haley's not famous for making analysis on herself that aren't favorable. So we'll see. But Robert, isn't Haley Trump the phenomenon? I mean, if DeSantis underperforms in Iowa, and it is Haley v. Trump, isn't that kind of symptomatic of the? the asymmetrical relationship that the donors in the Republican party have with the voting base. I mean, one is a manifestation of the donor class. The other is a creation of this base that is moved in a very nationalist populist direction. Absolutely. This is exactly what I was talking about. I think over a year and a half ago, 
that whichever way the donors line up, the all the uh, the voters and the activists line up and go the opposite direction uh, fast. And so that is exactly what's happening, and that that is what she's she's being beat up on, and and she's been held accountable for some of what these donors say. I mean, it it's hard to sell that everybody who backs CRT and backs China is backing you, but that'll have no effect on how you vote and how you act as president. You know, what do you veto and and what you support and what legislation you push and what you do with the uh, the administration and all the bureaucracy is going to be moved by those people who support you. And people know that. Robert, when, when you and I were a tag team, you were the guru, you were the statistician, you were the pollster, you were the consultant, you were the guy that, that knew far more about how to get elected. I was kind of the racehorse. I mean, I, I, it was good and instinct and doing, and doing my thing. I want to, I want to take that kind of dynamic and ask you a question. My instinct told me a year ago that the more Trump talked about immigration and inflation, the better he was. The less he talked about January 6th and the 2020 presidential election, the more damage he was doing to himself. Robert, it seems to me that the country now have settled somewhere between those two. In other words, they don't believe January 6th was an insurrection. They do believe something funky happened in the 2020 presidential election and Trump, I don't want to say gets a pass, but there's more. There's a more receptive audience today than there ever has been when he goes down that road that I thought would be very detrimental if he tries to get reelected. Is my instinct right? Yeah, I think it is, and I think part of it goes to the fact that we know more than we knew before, and that a lot of this video has been released that was that was held back. And they've heard of the stories of what some of these people have been doing. Uh, and the con- there's severe contrast between people who tore down buildings and, and burned things and, and, and rioted all over the country and got no punishment at all during the BLM riot and the treatment that some of the people have gotten that were in, you know, at the Capitol. I mean, criminal trespass, nobody's even in jail more than three years for that. And you've got people awaiting trial. People had him had trial. I mean, denied their rights. And uh, people really just uh, Americans kind of like fairness, and they don't they don't see fairness. And 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 they also smell a rat. You know, when the FBI director can't tell, um, you know, Representative Clay Higgins that there was zero informants and agents in the crowd, and he demands, "Well, why can't you just tell me a zero? That's the right answer." That's something that kind of stuck with people. And your poll says what in Iowa? Your poll says what in New Hampshire? And your poll says what in South Carolina? I think that's what people are most interested in, Robert Haley and Traveler. You guys have such a good track record. So, so what does Trafalgar say about these three critically important races as it relates to data? Well, I poll say as of right now, if weather wasn't a factor, Haley has hedged just above DeSantis. I don't know that that will end up being what happens based upon the weather and also Christy was in. My polls in South Carolina, New Hampshire were completely fouled up yesterday when Christy got out and had to start over again last <laughs> night, so I don't know. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. But you'll have I some new... so angry. But I mean, you'll have new yes, South Carolina data by when? Next week? Yes, 
Uh, yes, I will, and I was not happy. <laughs> so, Robert, how can people, I mean, obviously they listen to you on our show, but you tweet. I mean, you guys have a lot of other ways of communicating your message. If people want to keep up closer with your work in Trafalgar, what's the best way? Well, they can always follow us on, um, you know, uh, Trafalgar underscore group uh, on Twitter. And then the new uh, polling podcast, it's me uh, with the Trafalgar group and Matt Tatry of Insider Advantage called Polling Plus. Uh, it's on wherever you get your podcast. And um, we've got some pretty exciting episodes this week. We uh, interviewed our first guest was Newt Gingrich. Good deal. Robert, thank you for the time this morning, my man. Take care, and um, I may try to circle back with you on some good South Carolina numbers. Thank you a lot. Yes, sir. Y'all have a good day this morning. Robert Cahaley of Trafalgar, senior strategist. Uh, Willard Daugherty was talking about Anderson County. That's the county that Robert Hale's from, Anderson Anderson County. Let's take a break. I want to come back, and um, Willard Daugherty announced his reelection campaign here on the show a few moments ago. I want to get specific about two issues in particular that I know Willard is intimately involved in, and I'm glad he's going to be a member of council because he has experience and wisdom to kind of go down this road and figure out some good, solid answers, not for the government, but, but rather the constituents. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. We're jumping around a bit today. Got some more action in the 9 o'clock hour, some more show fuel in, in, the, in, the, in the 9 o'clock show hour. Show fuel. I, I appreciate it. my buddy hanging around, Willard Darty. Uh, was with us before Robert Cahaley. He's going to be with us after uh, Robert Cahaley. Willard is currently a member of Florence County Council and just announced, um, I, I guess, asking for your support in a re-election bid. Um, I want to get back to Willard because I want to talk about a couple of things. You have been intimately involved in the penny tax. Correct. And you have been <sighs> very supportive of making what you consider important and long-term investments um, talk about, if you don't mind, why that penny tax is so important and how the county as a whole benefits. Well, the penny tax allowed us to do things that we could not have done. Let's be honest. We couldn't the county put, doesn't have enough money, period. Right. If, if we couldn't have put that burden on the taxpayer. The, the, the taxes you'd had to pay on a home or a car, if you think they're, they're high now, you couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford it. So, And the good thing about the penny sales tax, uh, the second penny we, we projected – 39 to 40% of it came from out of a uh, county. That was the second one. The third one that we own now, we're looking at pretty close to 45% of it being collected from people that visit Florence County. Are we on schedule? I mean, the projected number, are we on below or above what we thought we'd collect? We are pretty much above. Of course, when we started it, we was doing, you know, COVID. We were concerned. We, we always do a bond to start with. We do some as pay as you go. The reason we do that, if we don't collect what we're supposed to collect, then we have to put a tax on the taxpayer. My way of thinking is I never want to do that. So we under uh, bid what we think it will be. And right now, this year, we just got through in April, excuse me, not April, December, doing an additional $50 million for for projects is coming from the third penny. We're pretty sure of that we've actually saved a considerable amount of money just in case something happens. We don't reach that. So we don't have to worry about burden the taxpayer with that. What it has allowed us to do. And I know some people don't like it, but because of the penny sales tax, you now have the finest 
rural fire department in South Carolina. You have the finest emergency operations center in the state, which continually wins state awards and national awards. I don't know if people understand that. We've got counties that just can't afford that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I could one day see a regional emergency operations center with Florence leading the way for the PD, which would be fantastic. Of course, they would pay a share, but it would certainly enhance things. Uh, the roads we've been able to do, and you know, people complain about roads, but they need to understand there's different pots of money. But what we do out of capital sales tax, we're doing in my case, if I serve one more term, I will have resurfaced at least 95% to hundred percent of the roads and streets of the district that I represent. But now I'm, I'm a consolidated district, so I'm not in a rural area. So sure. I don't have the mileage that other people have. But we've been able to do that, and I've tried to concentrate everything I can. Any any opportunity I have to help someone or a neighborhood, I do. We're bound by certain things. I can't do things on private properties against the law. I'm not going to jail for doing something wrong. But now if I can help someone, I can help a subdivision, we're always trying to do that. Uh, and that's what we should do. That's, that's That should be part of our job. We've also used this for emergency uh, services EMS has been improved. Uh, we cannot spend the capital sales tax on salaries. That's what a lot of people don't understand. But if you didn't raise this money, you'd probably have to take money out of the general fund that could be allocated to salaries. Is that fair? Exactly. In the last two years, I am so proud of the fact that, that because revenues have increased, we've been able to, to funnel salaries, money for salaries for all our employees in the county Last two years, each year is 3000 per year for all employees. Our sheriff's deputies, which was desperately needed, if they carry a gun or in harm's way, additional 5000 per year. It's got us up to where we are. We need to keep doing. We don't need to stop. And our sheriff's doing a phenomenal job, but we're trying to give him the resources to do it, and we're trying to give the rest of our employees resources with emergency services. It doesn't matter because – a business is only as good as its employees. If you don't have good employees, you don't have a good business. And we were losing employees, especially in law enforcement, to better paying jobs. Exactly. So There's no doubt about it. I want to, we got about three or four minutes. I, I want to go down the road with you that, that concerns me, and I want to get your take on it because I know you understand it. The county sold its water system to the city. Mm-hmm. The county has no say. I mean, you have some say. You have friendships and relationships and, and political responsibilities. But at the end of the day, the county is at the mercy of the city. I have concerns about the the operational aspects of the city water. I have a bigger concern about residents of the county being provided water by the city, paying a premium. Is there any interest at all, Willard? I don't want to say county getting in the water business, but but you've got an obligation to county residents. They're 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 paying for a service that is controlled by people they don't have any say in in electing. W- what is your opinion of that? Well, am I painting the picture properly? Yeah, I think you are. Uh, long before even you you became Correct. a county councilman, the water system was sold. In my opinion, it's the worst decision Florence County ever made. I mean, you know, and uh, I'm sorry if it hurt somebody's feelings that, that served in. It's just, just that way. Uh, if you control the water, you, you can, to a certain extent, direct economic development. Without water, you don't have economic development. It's just like you got to have power. Everything works on that besides labor. You know, it's power, labor, water. Those are the three things. 
that control economic development. Uh, for years, we've been paying in the county approximately 65% or more higher than the city residents have for water. The second thing is if you're building a home or you're a developer, you're paying at least three times for a tap fee or more. But the city turns around, and if you land that property into the city, they'll subsidize the developer of that property with lift stations or maybe some water and sewer infrastructure. I don't blame the businessman for that. If I was a businessman, I'd take it too. Anybody sitting out here would. But is it right? Because I feel like I, as the county resident, am paying for the city to be able to annex property and provide that. I've always thought that was wrong. And now with this new uh, water system coming on, I don't see where they're improving the existing water system. It all looks like to me they're trying to do something new. Well, if you don't do something about the existing water system, you got a problem. Repair and maintain. Right. And, and there's far more uh, individuals that pay water in the county than there is in the city. And I think they may end up with some legal problems on this force over. Is it taxation without representation? Most definitely. There ain't no doubt about it. I mean, you know, that's how I feel. I don't like it one bit, but I don't get a vote on it. All right, I'm going to open up a can of worms here. we got about a minute. And, and, and Willard, Willard Daugherty is a current member of county council running for re-election, just announced that about 20 minutes ago. The, the, the penny tax gives the county the ability to do things they could not otherwise do out of the general fund. You just said that. I'll agree with that. I mean, I was a member of county council. I applaud what you guys have done in regards to allocating those funds. Would the county ever consider, in some way, shape, or form, getting back in the water business? I would. No, I'm just one vote out of nine. So, A water authority, Willard? Uh, the first thing I'd like to see would be a rural water authority. So we bring in all of our small municipalities, and you know we work out some system with them so that we can enhance those because they need enhancing. You know, everybody needs water. I can't think of a better way to spend that revenue. Uh, well, I mean, I don't disagree with you. Than, than creating a system, a systematic way of providing more affordable water to county residents. Right. Well, here's the thing. The penny sales tax should be there to provide amenities that improve your county. Period. That's what it's there for. And if you can get someone else to help pay for it, which we're getting from people out of county, what better way to do it? Because eventually the next penny, you can figure it's going to be at least 50% of that or more is going to be provided from people. Just just look at the people that stop at Bucky's. You wouldn't believe the revenue we're picking up in hospitality tax from Bucky's. In fact, the hospitality tax we we, we, we gaining from Bucky's is going to fund the, the additions to the museum downtown. Taxpayer dollars are not going to pay for it. That from Bucky's is going to pay for it. Well, we appreciate you, and I mean that sincerely. Willard is a guy that does the work necessary to be a good council member. He's been around politics for a long time, and um, he certainly got my blessing. When he texted me and said, I'm running again, can I come on the show? Absolutely come on the show. We're going to get you back to talk uh, more about some of these issues the county deals with uh, at a further time or a later time. Be glad to anytime. Thank you very much. We'll take a break. We'll be back in a few moments. Rev, this next esteemed professional has been a guest on our show so much. I think he deserves his own bumper music. <laughs> well, I mean, I really do. I think sure. he's reached that status with Wake Up Carolina that he deserves his own 
personal bumper music. We'll get with him and find yeah, out let, what his choice is. Just let us know what is you it, want. Is we it reggae it or rock and roll? We need to make sure uh, we do what our next guest, Fox News Radio's Eben Brown, uh, would like to have as this entry uh, into the arena of conservative talk radio. Eben, good morning. How are you, sir? Good morning. Well, I'm in South Florida, so I guess it has to be like Jimmy Buffett. Yeah, we, can, we got some Buffett on the reel. Oh, I'm yeah. sure we do. We can do that. Yeah, we're, we're all Southerners <laughs> here and, uh, and living near the coast. Uh, Eben, I am such a cynic, and, and I'm such a contrarian. I get in my own way at about every at about every turn. I find everything wrong with the world. I like, got to look long and hard to find things I like about the world. I told my wife not long ago, I think I was born 100 years too late, and she said, 100? It's, it's more like two or 300 years um, too late. When I watched the debate last night, I watched bits and pieces. I heard a lot of coach candidates. I heard a lot of rehearsed lines. And I just don't think the general public are looking for that right now. There were some standout moments, obviously, and these are the two you know, challengers to Donald Trump, if anybody is going to be. I mean, what did you make of last night's GOP debate in Iowa? Well, I, I think you're, you're partially right. You know, they uh, you had two candidates who are obviously vying for second place. Uh, I think they know that, and and you know they don't make any uh, you know bones about it. But uh, I, I think that they tried it at points uh, throughout the night to make their their policy arguments, but at the same time they took the opportunity to to uh, snipe at one another. Uh, I've always sort of, I guess I'm a little bit of a cynic as well. I think some of these debates or part of the, the purpose of some of these debates is to generate B-roll and sound bites uh, for things like either the next 24 hour news cycle uh, or campaign commercials. <laughs> so I think that uh, some of the, sometimes the candidates, and I think all of them do this. I don't want to put this solely on Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley, uh, but they try to get a jab or a, a pithy line in there because that three or four or five seconds, a video is going to end up somewhere else. Uh, and uh, with that, uh, you know, I, I think they try to straddle, you know, trying to get that out of the way, but also try to make some real, you know, in-depth policy points, you know, because it's trying to get people to actually vote for them. And I think there's a real tangible, insatiable hunger uh, that uh, uh, that voters have wanting to know, you know, a little bit more than just the just the point, the talking point or the headline and try to know what some of these people are about. And I think it would behoove them, meaning people like Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, to play more to that because there are swingable voters, even in the Republican primary right now. There are people who are just going to vote for Donald Trump no matter what. Uh, but there are people who like Donald Trump and but are willing to be swayed. And then, of course, there are the people who will never vote for Donald Trump, and they have to fight for those people amongst themselves. So uh, that that's the... Uh, that's the the predicament or the challenge that they're in. I think that was reflected a bit last night. Uh, if you ask me who won, I, I don't I don't know. I, you know that's going to be different uh, for everyone who answers that question. And Evan, I even think there's an added dynamic. I mean, I guess I'm asking you to k- k- kind of um you know editorialize for a second, but I think the added dynamic is. I mean, obviously Trump is the front runner. I mean, by a mile. I mean, we'll find out in Iowa. We'll find out in New Hampshire. They're a little bit quirky and unique. But there's no doubt that Donald Trump is the perennial front runner. These two candidates are young enough to think about 2028, to think about elections to come. So I think part of the strategy has to be, hey, I may not win this one, but what is in my best interest to come 2028 post-Trump and offer up a kind of an alternate proposal? Do you think they have to consider that as we move forward? 
I, I think I'm sure it's in the, the backs of their minds uh, to a degree. I think when you're in the middle of a campaign, you're not thinking like that. You are actually, you know, thinking of, of how to go to the next contest. You're, you're often you're often spending other people's money and you, you know, you, you, you are you, if you're not giving it the, the best attention and, and your, your real energy, then I, I think that campaign money dries up. Uh, but uh, but I, I'm sure it's in the backs of their heads that, you know, especially for someone like Ron DeSantis, who is all of 45 years old. I mean, that's a political baby for that matter. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, in, in four years from now, he'll only be 49. So, why, you know, <laughs> he, he's got a lot of political life left in him if he wants it, if he's not going to go anywhere this round. Um, so, you know, that that's and Nikki Haley, not much older, I don't I don't think. And so she obviously would have have the same thing. Vivek Ramaswamy plenty young for that matter uh and uh and so i yeah i mean i i don't think their careers end with this if it doesn't go their their way well explained evan thank you for your time have a great day and we'll talk um sooner than later i'm sure you got it evan brown from miami um leads me to believe that he is complimentary of desantis when given an opportunity lives in miami when given the opportunity evan says uh, kind things, supportive things. Um, complimentary would be probably the better word. Complimentary things of the uh, of the DeSantis administration, and he's a Floridian. I don't know native or not, but he lives there, and um, and I guess you know watches the governor operate uh, up close and personal. I do believe. I mean, I think it's different for those two. I understand the ages that Nikki and DeSantis are. I just think Nikki's made kind of an all-in decision. And and I think she made a miscalculation. Nikki Haley doesn't make many miscalculations. But the one thing I've told Reb, because Reb will ask me, how well do you know her? I, well, I, mean, I knew her fairly well. I don't know her well at all now. That was 2010 when she and I got elected together. So that's 14 years ago. A lot of things have changed. I mean, she's been an ambassador to the United Nations. She's been on center stage in American politics uh, last night, no doubt, a center stage in American politics. But Nikki was always focused and ambitious, very focused, very ambitious. I'm not saying those are good or bad. I'm not, you, you focus and ambitious can be good. Focus and ambitious can be, can be not so good. Um, but I think those were characteristics that she was very consistent about. I think she made a, a faux pas. I think she made a bad decision in becoming the establishment's darling, the donor class's horse in this race. Um, and and I, I just think it's going to play out terribly for her. Now, now, where do you go from here? Do you go to a boardroom? Is there some deal made that if you'll be that, you know, if, what I'm saying, Rev, is may, maybe, may, I mean, I could be wrong. I mean, I know I could be wrong. I've been wrong a lot in my life. She She found a lane. And it's an important lane. It's the establishment lane. It's the donor class lane. I just think it's a one-lane road. I don't think it's a four-lane interstate like it was 10 years ago, 12 years ago, 16 years ago. I mean, there's no doubt that the donor class establishment lane has always been a worthy pursuit. Without question, Romney proved that. The Bushes proved that. Every Republican nominee post-Reagan declared that lane their own, ended up as the nominee and sometimes the president of the United States. But I'm arguing we are in a generational realignment. I've said that over and over and over again. And what was once the fruited plain 
is not so um, so lucrative now. That that's kind of my take on this. And I think the I think by her declaring that path, there is no doubt she'll be well funded. There is no doubt the media will fall over. I mean, that, that you that comes along with be, with being the establishment's darling, and 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 you know pre Trump, the establishment darling's lane was kind of wide enough to for some of the voters to embrace. But there's such skepticism that Republican primary voters have today with that lane. And I think once you say, okay, here's my path forward, I'm going to end up well-funded. I'm going to end up on every television network I want to be on. The New York Times will leave me alone. The Washington Post will leave me alone. I mean, they'll have to throw a little, I mean, they'll hit me with a feather every now and then because that's just what they have to do. But while they're trying to beat the crap out of Trump and, and whomever else, I mean, this is my lane. I'm protected. I'm insulated. I'm well-funded. I, I just think it's a, it, it's, it's a path to losing election after election after election after election in the Republican primary. I thought Robert Cahaley offered up an interesting answer to a question I posed when he brought up the word fairness. Americans have an innate ability to identify unfairness. Now, that's in the eye of the beholder. Fair enough. I mean, Rev may think this is fair, and I may not think it's fair. I mean, there's not an exact definition of fairness. What is fair? I mean, that's different for me than it is for you, and and neither one of us are right or wrong. But but I think, once again, and I go back to men with guns, I think in, in, in the spirit of fairness, when people look at mishandling classified information and potentially obstructing justice, and there's a kind of an armed, and I'm talking about not not you know not a six shooter like Matt Dillon. I'm talking about a machine gun, you know, one of these AR-15 looking weapons, intimidating looking guns. Guy had a big bulletproof vest on, lights flashing everywhere. I think the casual consumer of American politics says something stinks there, something doesn't smell right there. Didn't having a lot of presidents before Trump mishandled classified information, and the answer is all of them, every single one. Now, now in fairness. Trump probably was more difficult. You and I have agreed to that. I mean, we probably accepted that Trump was a little more difficult to deal with. But men with guns. Well, and at the same time, we were learning about Joe Biden potentially having classified documents at his office at UPenn and also at his garage next to his Corvette. And he didn't have, uh, he wasn't raided by men with big guns. And, And I just think when you break it down, is it fair or not? And the American people are going to say, that's just not fair. I mean, I have a sense of unfairness, a feeling of unfairness there. I mean, that's just, that's treating that dude, however difficult he may be, however, you know, uh, complicated his situation may be. Really? Flashing lights at his private residence and men with guns in the middle of the night? I, I just think that's why Trump gets away with talking about J6 and talking about the 20. 20 election talking about some of his legal and you're talking about legal problems not influencing the people that as we would say have trump derangement syndrome you're talking about the moderate the voter the i'm talking about the hundred fifty thousand people that matter exactly i mean that's what i'm talking about the trump voter is not going to change his mind the 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 never trumpers not going to change their mind they they're dire cast i mean it is what it is i'm with trump i don't care if he broke every law there is i'm against trump i don't care if he's found innocent of everything They've charged him with, but there's 150,000 people who aren't consumed by that story. And I just believe that they're beginning to kind of look at this as what's fair and what's not fair. And Trump has become somewhat of a sympathetic figure. 
And you got to work mighty damn hard to turn Donald Trump into a sympathetic figure. Let's go to the phone. <laughs> Here is David in the PD. Good morning. Hey, good morning, uh, Diamond Dave at the Mission Control booth. Uh, and Chris Christie, I think of him as the Goodyear Kamikaze. Uh, I think you uh, referred to something that Goodyear makes, but if you think about uh, the Kamikaze back in the day during World War II, Imperial Japan, that was there, the Kamikaze, that was their desperate attempt to protect the empire. So that's what Christie, Chris Christie's doing. He's trying to protect the empire, but he, he can always go back to Stephanopoulos Roundtable or whatever and go to CNN. You got to talk about Iowa and New Hampshire and what the, they talk about diversity within the Democrats. And we talk about Republicans being stale and pale. Here's a statistic. There's more black people in Florence County, Sumter County, Orangeburg County, and Darlington counties than all of Iowa and New Hampshire combined. So Iowa and New Hampshire, they are stale and pale. And the wallpaper in New Hampshire is stale as well. And I'll leave you at this, man. If SEAL Team 6 took out Donald Trump, they would have a holiday in New York City, Chicago, Washington, D.C., L.A., San Francisco. That SEAL Team 6 would get Medal of Honors, and there would be no questions asked. Uh, so forget the Constitution when it comes to these folks. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let, let's play another, because we're playing a lot of hypotheticals, because we don't, I mean, we're in uncharted territory. We're talking about the 14th Amendment. We're talking about our, our Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And, and you know, the, the lawyer in the case in D.C. used a very extreme example. Could Trump, as president, I guess order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate the Democrat front runner? Well, I mean, if you do that, you, you still, I mean, it, well, the argument the Trump team are making is, okay, if I, do, I know I've broken the law. I mean, I've ordered the murder of an innocent person. I mean, there's, you know, I've, I've ordered the murder of anybody, but I don't think you've got a right to order. I mean, it's in the mob. You don't have the right to hit, you know, and take somebody down. Um, but in, in that, fr framing it that way, Rev, you, you've got, they use an extreme example on purpose, and I get it. I mean, I, that's probably what I would do if I were trying to create, you know, a controversial picture of interpreting uh, that that amendment. I think the better question, the more important question is, and, and Trump is basically saying, well, I mean, if I do that, I'm going to get impeached, and then I'm going to get, you know, found guilty. I'm going to get convicted of the impeachment. So, so anyway, um, and then the, the, the judge would probably say, well, I mean, not if you've got everybody in the House in your pocket. I mean, not if the senators are scared of you. Uh, but, but I think the better question, the more appropriate question is to, to ask yourself, should the president be allowed to go to extreme measures to defend the protesting of an election that he doesn't believe was fair? I mean, that, that's really the central, I mean, if Trump believes he has Im immunity and they're saying he doesn't because he, he, um, he obstructed a proceeding and he, uh, get conspired against the United States and the peaceful transition of power. You've heard all that debate on the other side, but in essence, the, the, the question before the court in practical sense is, does a president have a right to protest to the extreme, the outcome of, of an election that he doesn't find trustworthy? Uh, you might argue he has the responsibility well, as I mean, the chief executive well, of the country. What are the limits to immunity when it comes to that? Right. I mean, I understand you're asking about SEAL Team 6. 
but Trump didn't order SEAL, SEAL Team 6. Right. He did order. I mean, he, he didn't he order. He called for a gathering and a protest in Washington. But I never heard him say, now go down there and stop them from taking the no, vote. No, he said peacefully. Yeah. Peacefully protest. Yeah. I mean, that would be part of the language that I would use. What I, I, The point I'm trying to make is I don't know that the extreme example serves any purpose in this debate. I mean, the, the, the practical matter is Donald Trump didn't trust the outcome of the election. And Donald Trump went to extreme measures compared to former presidents of protesting an election he didn't find trustworthy. I mean, he did go to, I mean, compared to other presidents, it was pretty extreme what they did. I mean, you would agree to that. I mean, I don't think it was an yeah. insurrection, but it was pretty damn extreme. But does he have immunity from obstructing a proceeding or conspiring against the United States if he genuinely didn't trust the outcome of the election and he passionately protested the election in the most extreme measure imaginable? Does he or not have immunity from that? I mean, that's the question that we're going to, to hear, and it's going to the Supreme Court because he's not going to get a fair shake. I mean, you know he's not going to get a fair shake in D.C., and there's no way this this goofball of a judge, Erdogan or whatever his name is, hmm. I mean, there's no way he gets a fair a fair shake there. But um, but but it, it, it'll be interesting, and we're playing a lot of hypotheticals here, but that's not a hypothetical. That's exactly where we are. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Uh, Rev's a big Trump fan. Would you agree, Rev, he's doing some double duty. Uh, for those just joining us or didn't hear earlier uh, this morning, there's normally three of us. There's only two of us today because Josh got sick last night. Gave it the um, gave it a, a kind of a yeoman's try early this morning, but had to go back and um, uh, just under the weather. But being the big Trump loyalist you are, mm -hmm. would you agree that the Trump team's interpretation of the immunity clause is a bit bizarre? I mean, it, it's a bit out there. It's um. It's not commonsensical. I want to get back to that in just a second, but I want to make sure. But, we're, I, knew, but I knew where you're going. With yeah, that well, now. well, hang on to that just a second. Um, I don't have any idea what the ratings are for the debate last night between DeSantis and Haley. I don't have any idea what the ratings are for the sit down uh, with Donald Trump last night against the town hall on Fox News. I, I will say this: when you watch a debate, you get a lot of rehearsed answers. You get a lot of coached candidates. The beauty in Trump, if there is any, well, it's damn beautiful if you're in conservative talk radio, is you never know what you may get. You never know what he may may say. I woke up this morning, mass deportation is plastered all over the uh, the headlines. Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern is in our nation's capital. He's with us this morning. Um, Jared, one thing about Trump, love him, hate him, could care less about him. He is unpredictable. I mean, he does say things at times normal politicians don't normally say and some way, somehow gets away with it most times. Was there anything that caught our attention last night, Jared? A couple of things. Listen, I think you're right about Trump, and he will drive the political conversation today as well, I think, because that's also uh, one of the, the um, uh, sort of issues, that are so, sort of the, the things you see with Trump. Uh, what caught my attention were two things. One, and it's related to the point you just made, right, where uh, the words that, that the president says sometimes, uh, lead to, to a lot of news coverage. He seemed to soften to me a little bit of this talk about um, being a dictator and, and the retribution and the vindictiveness that you sometimes hear on the campaign trail. He was asked about that 
Um, and he said, listen, I'm going to be too busy uh, for retribution or to be vindictive, <laughs> uh, that the best way to, to be to, the best way to, to, to show everybody that they were wrong is success. And, and we're going to have success and that'll be enough. So it seems to me trying to, to soften, at least in the town hall, a little bit, some of these uh, concerns that have been expressed, not just by President Biden and Democrats, but by some Republicans that uh, he spends too much time. Trump spends too much time talking about 2020 and, and how he appears, how he thinks that he's been wronged and aggrieved. And, you know, they're going to, you know, get rid of the deep state and, and you know, people are going to be held for account. He seemed to, at least in the debate yesterday, or the, the town hall yesterday, soften that a, a little bit. Um, I'll be interested to see if it signals any shift in the way that he speaks at these rallies, at his campaign events on social media. I guess that remains to be seen. He also said that he knows who his running mate's going to be, um, did not offer any clues as to who that individual is. But um, it's another indication that he's already kind of thinking about the next step here and, and certainly believes that he is in the position here to become the Republican nominee. Jerry, is it fair to say that, that as Trump softens, the constituency hardens? In other words, we kind of meet him in the middle. He's not as crass mm. or bombastic, but we are more, ah, I don't want to say receptive. We're more forgiving to candidates today who say things that pre-Trump, we didn't forgive them for saying. In other words, he's normalized yeah, saying, yeah. some of the abnormal of politics. Well, I think that's true to an extent, although there has also been a lot of elections as of late that have indicated that it kind of only works for Trump, right? <laughs> I mean, you've seen other Republicans kind of take on that, that Trump mantle in, in his campaign style. And they haven't been as successful as him. Um, and so that is part of the appeal for a lot of voters with, with Trump, is that he is one of a kind. He is unlike any politician in their view that they have heard from before, seen before. Um, and I think, uh, you know, uh, that's one of the reasons that you haven't seen his numbers uh, crater um, for events that would crater other campaigns, like being indicted multiple times and some of the, the legal challenges around getting on the ballot and, and these other issues is because uh, that is, is kind of a feature, uh, not a flaw for, for former President Trump. That is very well explained. Jared, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. You too. Um, I mean, does that make sense, Rev? That, that as he, because I think Jared is suggesting that he has softened a bit. Um, I mean, I don't hear a lot of Trump. I mean, he does a few of these events. He says a few things. He truth socials, but I mean, we don't hear anywhere yeah. near as much out of him as we, um, as we did. Yeah. I'll give an example. Um, my daughter and I were together. I know my oldest son and I were together Saturday afternoon and we're talking about politics. He's kind of interested in politics and we were down to the beach and, um, YouTube recommended a video. You know how they do that. And it was the 2016 election. And it was when Marco Rubio accused Trump of working illegal aliens. And Rubio had it ready. I mean, it's GOP Central Station. I mean, it's it's where you do it, Central Casting. I mean, you know, I'm I'm the the I'm the young photogenic political athlete. You know, I know what I'm talking about. This audience is typical. I mean, it's the Republican uh, base. And he said, "There's only one person on this stage that has ever hired illegal workers to work in their business." And in a nanosecond, in a nanosecond, Trump says, "I'm the only man on this stage that's ever hired anybody." <laughs> 
And while I'm hiring people, you're over here having trouble with your credit card. Remember Rubio had an issue with the credit card? He had charged yeah, some that's right. He had charged some personal expenses on a campaign card, <laughs> and they were killing him over that. And Trump, and, but this is what he said. Now, listen, and this is what my son thought was hilarious. It's not when he said, I'm the only person to hire anybody. He said, you're, you're over, while I'm over here hiring people, you're having trouble with your credit cards, et cetera. And my son thinks it's hilarious that he threw in, et cetera. <laughs> and, and it's so, I mean, it's, there's, a, there's a sense of authenticity there. That, that people find so attractive and so relatable. And, and I, I just think he is, we, we often say, you're a Gamecock, I'm a Gamecock. We believe we had a political, excuse me, a coaching unicorn in Steve Spurrier. Sure did. Rick Beato, the guy that you and I like on the internet that breaks mm-hmm. down these songs, he said about Sting, he's unreplicatable. Spurrier is unreplicatable. You can't create another Steve Spurrier. Um, Saban's the all-time greatest coach, but he's not a unicorn. We've seen people like Saban before. You never see anybody like Spurrier. I mean, he walks to the beat of his own drum. He does his own thing, and he's really good at what he does. Trump is a political unicorn. And for those who believe that the, 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 the mindset of Trump, the demeanor, the lack of decorum, the lack of reverence, that that's a transferable that other people can do that and get away with it. Now, eventually, I think people understand their version of that. But I think to believe that you can take what Trump does and apply it to your own campaign is just, it's not going to work. I mean, it never, I mean, it may eventually work once we figure out how much of that you can incorporate in the way you run for office. But he is a political unicorn. And I know some people don't like that political unicorn. A lot of people didn't like Steve Spurrier. Right? I mean, they, he rubbed them the wrong way. Yeah. He says too much, man. I mean, he runs the score up. He, he, he walks to the beat of his own drum. He doesn't conform at all. I mean, he thinks he's bigger. I don't know what Spurrier thought. <laughs> really, nobody knows what Spurrier thinks. But that makes him kind of a mystical figure. And I think Trump has some of those same characteristics. There, there's something one of a kind about him. He's one of one, I guess. And I, and I would say this, you talk about not seeing him as much now, and it seems like some of the rhetoric is toned down a little bit, whether that's on purpose or just because he's preoccupied with legal issues or whatever, I don't know. I heard some sound bites from his town hall last night, and I came away from that thinking, man, if he keeps it on that level and he answers those questions and engages with reporters and audience members like he did last night, I don't see how he's beatable. But think of this. Think about how much he knows of what, how much more he knows today of what he's talking about than he did in 2015 or 16. I mean, Trump was a worldly man. He was a successful man. Trump didn't know much about government, and he gave these kind of weird answers at times. I mean, he didn't know what the DOJ did or what the FBI and CIA. I mean, I I bet if you ask Trump, hey, who's the FBI answer to? I don't know. I mean, he, he was a political novice. I mean, he'd been around politics as a donor. And somebody, I guess, you know, I mean, as a real estate developer in New York, I know he probably dealt with the, the city council and the mayor and, and, and all of those. But, I mean, he didn't understand s- some of the answers he gives now. He appears to be more confident in his answer because he has an understanding now. I mean, he was president for four years. He saw some of the mistakes he made. He may not admit those mistakes to us, but he's aware of some things he didn't do right. Fauci comes to mind. I mean, keeping Fauci, trusting Fauci, enormous mistake for Donald Trump. 
But I think the reason, Rev, you find him more comfortable, or he appears to be more comfortable, yeah. he knows a lot more what he's talking about now than he did in 2015 and 16. And if you, you know, above and beyond the style, if you just compare him to, you know, the current president, for example, in his way and ability to interact with people or make a speech or seem coherent or whatever, it's it's obviously such a contrast. And then you flip over to the other channel where Haley and DeSantis are going at it and it just, it's a whole different level. It's a weird phenomenon. And I use the all in the family as an example. You can have Seinfeld if Jerry's not there. You can have an episode or two or three if Elaine's not there. You could have a few without Kramer, a few without George. You didn't need that one. Per- you could not have an episode of Archie, all of the family without Archie Bunker. And I worry about the GOP when Trump exits stage left or right in this case, Archie Bunker leaves. What does all of the family do? I mean, it falls upon itself. So, so where does that new energy in the next phase? I mean, that, I've always said that's what I worry enormous. This sitting Seinfeld, this sitting friends. You don't have a cast of stars. This is all of the family. You got one big star. And what's that big star says, I'm out of here. What happens to the rest of the cast? I think we should all be gravely concerned about that eventuality. Take a break. I know we got callers, and we'll get there as soon as we get back. It's a big old crazy world, Rev, that you and I live in. It's part of the big old crazy world. It's the big old crazy health insurance industry. It's complicated. Um, everyone's situation is different but the current model and construct does not allow you to take advantage of being healthy. I'm not using health insurance a lot. Imagine the largest line item in 30% of all families' budgets is something you don't hardly ever use, and that is health insurance. If you're under the age of 65, if you're reasonably healthy, you're paying too much for health insurance. And Christian Levis at Real Choice Healthcare believes he can help you. Call 839-888-3970, 839-888-3970, or go to the website realchoicehealthcare.com. It's worth your time. Let's go to the phone. Daryl in Chirag. Good morning. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you guys doing today? Hey, sir. How are you? Fine. I want to preface this by first saying that uh, in 16, I did vote for Trump. But uh, sending the, the, uh, the crowd down to the Capitol wasn't his only thing he did. He also asked Mike Pence, as vice president, to not hold up the uh, count, but also to disregard the electors and choose the electors that he sent to, um, to for the most part, make him president again. Now, that would have really thrown the United States into turmoil. And uh, you talk about earlier uh, taxation without representation, that would have uh, probably been the, the loudest scream ever heard. And the thing that makes me not want to vote for him again is because he didn't care. Uh, he had no problem with doing this. Uh, one of the things that was uh, reported was that uh, his uh, advisors said that um, – that was what the Insurrection Act was for. Let me ask you a question. I, I, I place this in hypothetical. Do you believe that certain constitutional officers in certain states played fundamental roles in their state's elections that they're constitutionally not responsible for? What do you mean? There were a lot of changes to rules and regulations in swing states 
that the General Assembly never voted on. The constitutional officer took charge of that process and violated their state's constitution. I mean, that happened in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. There, there's a big debate in Michigan as to whether that constitutional officer, Secretary of State in most places, violated that state's constitution by usurping the authority of the General Assembly. If we're going to make changes to election law in Pennsylvania, the General Assembly has to vote on it. They never did. And the Secretary of State made changes to the way votes are counted, the way votes are processed. Well, uh, well, how does that affect what I'm saying? Well, that makes the election illegal, doesn't it? Doesn't it make the election uh, illegal? Well, it makes the election uh, a serious difference because of the situation that we were in. We were in a pandemic, and because we were in a pandemic, people were, uh, of course, afraid to stand in line, so they made uh, arrangements for other folks who would not normally want to vote to vote. I understand that, but did they violate the state's constitution or not? But because of that, President Trump got the largest amount of votes than any president in history. The only change was the fact that more people were allowed, were able to vote, and they outvoted him. There is nothing weird about that because he's never carried the population in this country. But, Even in the sixteenth election, he was he lost by three million votes. But did we certify a legal or illegal election? We certified a legal election. Even though certain constitutional officers in certain states violated that constitution. And he had the ability to argue that in 60 different courts. Sure. And was turned away each time. No, the courts never, the court said he lacked standing. They didn't hear the trial. They never were presented any evidence. I know we're we're splitting hairs here, but but what what I'm (laughs) arguing is to suggest he had no leg to stand on when asking Pence to not certify this election, it's just not true. I mean, no, that, that, it, is, it is very true. No, it's not. It's not true at all. 60, it's not true at all. He had 60, he had 60 court chances to, to, to change that. And what he was doing was illegal to introduce electors. But, 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 but go back to my original question. If a state constitutional officer who is not in charge of elections usurp the authority of a general assembly which are in charge of elections and allow things to happen that are normally illegal because of covid because of the pandemic is that election legal or not isn't it the right of that state to create any kind of laws as far as their elections are concerned now if the legislator thought that that was incorrect they had the ability to go to court and overturn that election, right? Yeah, I mean, we're making legal... The point I'm trying to make, sir, and and look, I think January 6th was a bad day. I mean, I think Trump peddled fantasy, and I think that led to some of what happened. I don't think he incited an insurrection, but I think he peddled fantasy. I've said that, and I think he encouraged a group of people who wanted to be rowdy to be more rowdy than they normally would have been. I don't think he escapes uh, blame there but I also don't think he incited an insurrection. But the point I'm making on Pence, when, when he tried to encourage Mike Pence to not certify the election, 
there's a valid complaint. I mean, many scholars believe that about three or four states violated their constitution. Therefore, their certification was should have been null and void. Yeah, but there's a point in time where even if you are right, you have to, for the betterment of the country, be the bigger person and step back, make the changes that need to be made for the next time, and then run again. Or you fight so like hell for what you believe in. Or, or you fight like hell for what you believe in. You fight like hell for what you believe in, but when you burn the house down because you don't, you don't think you shouldn't like matches, you are biting your nose off to spite your face. I hear you. I, mean, I, I, think you make a ve- I think you make a very valid and legitimate point. I'm not saying your, your, your perspective is crazy and nonsensical. It's certainly not, and I respect your perspective. I'm just trying to argue from the other side there was legitimacy to that concern. That's fine. You're, if you have legitimacy in that concern, you have the courts, and if the courts fail you, you have the right to gather around. Or, or run again. Right or run again. And that's what he Or run again and try to win this time. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the call. We're out of time. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.